Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald face truth. Well, I was there in Atlanta. You saw it as well. The Ducks, did they lay an egg? Did they get steamrolled by a team that we're going to see play in the college football playoff? Can you evaluate Oregon in the arena that we saw on Saturday at Mercedes-Benz Stadium? That's a big question to ask. The Ducks are out of the top 25. A lot of people think they aren't uh, a team that could win eight or more games this season now, all of a sudden. Is it an overreaction? Probably. Do the Ducks have some soul-searching to do? Definitely. Are there questions about Dan Lanning and the Oregon coaching staff? I think so. We'll talk about it off the top of the show today, and I want your phone calls. What did you see? What did you What worries you the most, I guess, is the question to ask off Oregon's opening game. They didn't look good, right? We know that. They got ran out of the building. Like, I didn't expect Oregon to win that game necessarily, but I thought Oregon could play close. But I didn't see anything that made me believe that Oregon, if you played that game 100 times, could be close in any of them. I have questions about the quarterback position. I'm not calling for anybody's head today. But it's a week one game. And week one is made for overreaction. 503-417-7575 is the number. I want your phone calls off the top of the show today. Uh, I was there in Atlanta. We did the show there from you know Thursday and Friday. There was a lot of energy, a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of curiosity about what would happen. People were excited, I think, to see Georgia play. Uh, people were excited to see what Oregon's defense, the front seven at Oregon, would look like. And in the end, I think that was one of the most surprising things for me. Georgia looked like a team that was in week seven form. Like, offensively, they made everything look easy. Receivers were wide open. Stetson Bennett had plenty of time to throw. Uh, Georgia looked comfortable. Meanwhile, Oregon, uh, nothing came easy. Bo Nix struggled in the red zone in particular through one really bad interception and one kind of bad interception in the game. But uh, I didn't leave that game thinking the sky was falling. I left the game thinking, gosh, what did I miss when it came to the University of Oregon? What did I miss when it came to Georgia? Is it possible, like if you're spinning the narrative that Oregon can turn this season around, you, you sort of begin with Chip Kelly in 2008 against Boise State. And you say, hey, that one started ugly, too. Didn't get a first down in the first half with that offense. Mike Bellotti, the former Oregon coach, came down from the press box in the third quarter and was on the sideline kind of pacing back and forth, kind of offering his input to Chip Kelly. Uh, Arms folded, a little worried on the sideline. Like, you know, hey, uh, you know, I got to help. Let me help the guy out. Uh, I kind of felt like Oregon clearly was in over its head against Georgia. But how much of that is Georgia, guys? How much of that is the Georgia machine, the Georgia defending national champion, Stetson Bennett coming back, five-star recruits? Uh, They just made it look so easy 
it kind of, to me, looked like a perfect opportunity for Georgia to get out, break a sweat, score some touchdowns, work on some offensive things. And meanwhile, Oregon was running around the field trying to figure out which way was up, which way was down. How good is Georgia? How bad is Oregon? We'll get to Oregon State and the rest of the Pac-12 Conference as well. I thought the Beavers got what was the best win of the opening weekend for the Pac-12. And yes, 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 I know. That's not Boise State, Chris Peterson-era Boise State. Andy Avalos is struggling. There's calls in Boise for his head. People are wondering. He's 7-6 and six in his first 13 games. They're wondering uh, you know, it, where, where it went wrong. People are wondering if Chris Peterson might come back and you know, resurrect Boise State and coach there again. And there is a lot of angst and hand-wringing, but I thought Oregon State did a really nice job with a Mountain West program that I think is going to struggle and beat them like they should have beat them. But I want your phone calls off the top of the show. 503-417-7575 is the number. What did you see? We're going to start with Roy, okay? Roy is a Georgia hunk. I, Roy has probably not slept since the game, and he deserves it, you know? Georgia looked that good. Roy, Georgia looked good. Hey, John. You know, um, that has got to be, in all my years of watching Georgia, that has got to be the most complete beatdown of a team that was ranked, a highly ranked team by Georgia. I've never seen Georgia dismantle a team that was ranked as high as, as high as Oregon was. And um, I just, you know, I got a lot of stuff. <laughs> I don't even know. Let me, let me ask you this, Roy. Do you think Georgia's that good, or was Oregon overrated and therefore set up for a bad day, or maybe some of both? Okay, okay, okay. Let me... Georgia, we're good, okay, and I. But we're nowhere as near that defense is nowhere as good as it was last year. So, you know, last year's defense was smothering. Oregon did move the ball a little bit on it. You wouldn't have been able to do anything last year. So I, I'm not the the defense is not the front seven is not quite there yet. To me, it's like yes. When when Kirby told said Dan Lanning, you know, we just got better players. Come on, man. I think, you know, he was just throwing something for his boy, Dan Lanning. You got, we got better players at Georgia, but not 48 to three better players. Okay. I mean, yes, we do have, we, we do have better players, but in that game, John, if Kirby wouldn't have pulled, if they wouldn't have pulled out the starters in the, in the second half, I totally believe we could have scored a hundred points on, on Oregon. I really believe that. I really believe we could have scored if we would have kept the starters in from the beginning to the end. We would have scored 100 points on you guys, 100 points. Seriously. And that leads me to say, in, in in the second half, John, you had your first string in there against our third string, and you still couldn't score. You still couldn't score. <laughs> you know, and and that leads me to believe this: put some put some respect on Mario Cristobal's name. If Mario Cristobal is the head coach of Oregon, Oregon doesn't get beat like that. Now, I don't know the Oregon fans want to get mad. Put some respect on Mario Cristobal's name. To me, this is a Dan Lanning thing. I'm sorry. We're good, yes. We may be one of the top two teams in the country, but no, we're not going to dominate any other team like we dominated Oregon. We're not going to dominate Kentucky like that. We're not going to dominate Tennessee like that. We're not going to dominate anybody on our schedule like we did Oregon. And that, to me, goes to coaching. And all those teams, 
Oregon was ranked higher than Kentucky and Florida. We're not going to beat those teams like we beat like we beat Oregon. Florida looked pretty good to me. We'll get to them in a minute, but Florida looked pretty good. But yeah, it's coaching. It's coaching, John. I'm telling you, man. If Mario Cristobal is the coach, we, uh, Oregon doesn't get beat. Like I, I like Dan Lanning. He's a nice guy. Even my wife called me and was like, <laughs> she doesn't even watch football. Was like, Dan Lanning looks like a high school coach on the side. She was watching it at home on TV. She said he looks like a high school coach. Dan Lanning looked lost. Yeah. He did not know what way was going. He went in. Dan, Dan had no game plan, John. He went in and thought he was going to do the same stuff he was doing with Georgia. Like, Georgia wasn't going to uh, uh, change up the game plan. And then anybody that thought when they hired Dan Lanning that he was coaching the Georgia defense, Dan Lanning was not coaching anything his tenure as, as the defensive coordinator. That's why I, don't get, I didn't get the hype of Dan Lanning. It was all – this is Kirby Smart's defense. This is Wills Muschamp's defense. Dan Lanning is a great recruiter. But to think that he was actually doing something when he was the defensive coordinator at Georgia, no, he wasn't. And I don't know who made – I don't blame Dan Lanning for taking the job, John. But with all due respect, Dan Lanning should be the coach at University of Akron or UNLV or University of Nevada. You don't take the University of Oregon job with okay. his thin resume. All right, all right. Roy in Portland. Roy, I, I think Georgia's that good. I want to say Oregon's not that bad, but I think we're going to find out. And we're going to find out this week as they play Eastern Washington. Uh, and we're going to find out in two weeks when they play BYU. And if Oregon starts this season 0-3, look out. Mark in Portland, weigh in. Mark, what do you think? Well, I, as bad as it was, uh, I, I don't think it's possible to, to, to score 100 points. So he's, he's definitely uh, definitely having a He's excited. Time. He's excited. <laughs> Roy's excited. Um, I don't I blame him. It was, it was a beatdown much like, you know, the way Utah beat us down. If you look at Oregon's last – four games against quality opponents, Oklahoma, Utah twice, and now Georgia. They've, they've lost by an aggravated, like, 40, I think it's it's by 31 points by average they've lost those four games. So there's something something that's definitely turned at Oregon. Uh, this isn't the same team that started the season last year when they ran over Ohio State. And when he said that last year's Georgia team, I would have liked to have seen the Mario Cristobal. And you guys that were all bad-mouthing Mario Cristobal – you're going to see this guy won two conference titles. He won a Rose Bowl. Oregon was competitive. You know, they, they, they slipped up and lost some games they should have won with him. But this was embarrassing to Duck yeah. fans. I mean, it was, it, was, it was impossible to watch the game. I, I continued to – I went back out and started uh, finished off my yard work because it was just – no, there was no hope in the game whatsoever. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. Don, I kind of – I didn't predict that kind of beat down, but I knew they were walking into – a hornet's nest. This is a team that's defending national champs. They're they're already in sync. They're playing at a high level. And Oregon has 21 portal transfers. A new coach. It was a stupid game to take, uh, as as it turned out. It's it's you know. But I'm interested to see what the Ducks do. Last year they started with the best out of conference win in the history of their school, and it really didn't do them any good. Right now their their manhood's being challenged. Now. Everybody thinks they're a horrible football team. And so this is what football is all about. It's improving each week. It's getting better. And, you know, let's see. I'm not ready to throw the, the new coach under the bus. I'm, I'm, I'm alarmed, though. I think this week's going to be – it's no games a gimme now. 
and they better believe that. They better know that they're in a Super Bowl every week, and yeah. they're, they're they're being challenged. And nobody thinks they're any good this year. But the the North is wide open. It's yeah. You know, it, look, I think the conference. The side. I think the conference is wide open. And look, I talked to you. Uh, you know, you're going to hear an interview with Mike Leach coming up here that was taped last night. All right, so I last night Mike Leach calls after midnight, and I said, "Let's have an interview." One of the things he's going to talk about when you hear this interview at four o'clock is Leach is going to talk about overreacting to Week One. You know, if you play poorly in Week One, and keep in mind he's had some teams that lost to uh, you know some Big Sky Conference opponents in Week One. He was at Washington State, then came back and went to bowl games. So he said, you know, he's going to talk about like not overreacting. But I got to tell you, watching that game, it was difficult, and, and I don't think it's a really an overreaction to be concerned about Oregon at this point because they went from a team that you know most people thought would be a top twenty team, not a top ten team. Most people thought Oregon would be a top twenty team because of their talent, especially on defense, and they look like a team that couldn't win a bowl game or get to a bowl game. And, John, and it, oh, sorry, to Mark's point. Yeah. The last four losses that they had, it was 49-3 Georgia, 47-32 to Oklahoma, and then the Utah games, 38-10, 38-7. So they're 1-4 yeah. in, in the last five, and they've been by big margins. Yeah, big, bad losses where they were blown off the field. And as a fan, I, I don't blame you for being concerned. Bruce is in Portland. Uh, that opens a line at 417-7575 in the 503 area code. Go ahead, Bruce. Hey, John. Um, I, I'm a little bit concerned, but Georgia was definitely bigger, faster, stronger. I mean, those guys were monsters on the outside. Georgia's tight ends and the scheme they were running on offense were they so overmatched our corners and safeties and outside linebackers. It was True. crazy, you know. And then we couldn't get any pressure on Stetson, you know. It's yeah. just, they were bigger, and they've got they're all five stars, you know. So their offense is intact pretty much from last year. I did not expect. Obviously, like a lot of Duck fans, a 49-3 blowout. I expected it, you know, us to be a little more competitive. And I think that those two turnovers, those two interceptions, really changed a lot of momentum. If we could have scored on that one with a personal foul to put us first and 10 at the 29, I think that would have would have done a lot for the psyche of our team. Yeah. Um, I didn't see Glanny making a lot of adjustments either, man. He just kept – they seemed to keep Bo Nix really on a tight leash, you know. Which yeah. I don't blame him after two interceptions, but you're not going to win a game Duncan and Duncan three, four, five yards at a time against that team. Yeah. You know, it was just a superior team. We've got a, a ways to go, and like you said, it's going to show this weekend if they come out with a freaking fire in their belly and, and trounce Eastern Washington, and then BYU. I think is the big game. If they can, if they can win that game, I think things will be back on track. Well, yeah, if, if they're sitting at 2-1 and one and they look better and Bo Nix looks competent or Dan Lanning is willing to go to Ty Thompson or Jay Butterfield, that's a whole other discussion. Uh, I, I think, like, in two weeks we're going to feel a lot differently. But the thing that concerned me, and I want to know what your big concern was as someone observing that game at 503-417-7575, your phone calls here in this segment and the next. But the thing that concerned me the most is the strength of the Oregon's team was supposed to be the defense. And Bo Nix was not supposed to be deer in the headlights. He'd played in big SEC games. Neither of those things happened. Bo Nix looked like a first-time, first-game starter. The defense, they were just they didn't make any plays. And Georgia had an easy time of it. I want your phone calls. You got the bald face truth. The phone number is 503-417-7575. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. 
The media who covered Georgia in Atlanta at Mercedes-Benz Stadium were all buzzing about how good the Bulldogs looked on offense, how different they looked. The formations, the motion, Stetson Bennett looked comfortable. Uh, Georgia really didn't try to run the football. They didn't have to. They were throwing it all over the stadium, pretty much getting what they wanted. Um, How much of that was Dan Lanning? Were they trying to mix some things up? Or how much of that is just Georgia's going to play a little different this year? And what is your biggest concern if you're an Oregon fan? 503-417-7575. We'll talk about the Beavers coming up as well. Oregon State played really well against Boise State. Made them look bad. And I think Boise State is going to struggle this season on the field. They don't look like the same old Boise State. Uh, We're going to go to Dave in Springfield. If you could punch him up for me there, Stephen. uh, Dave in Springfield, welcome to the show. What's driving me crazy the most about it is I thought Oregon would struggle on offense a little bit. You know, Dillingham, a new new offensive coordinator the whole bit, but I never thought that Oregon would struggle tackling like they did this game. I mean, poor form. I've been a season ticket holder for a number of years. I I go to all the games. I I have a a backseat linebacker myself, and, and I look for form tackling. I look for stuff like that. And I saw none of that. No form tackling. The, you know, two or three guys would miss. They'd bounce off. There was no gang green of attack mode. And it really concerns me. You would think with Dan Lanning coming in, you know, this touted defensive coordinator, national champion, that he would at least start with the basics of form tackling. And it yeah. concerns me. Let me ask you a question. As you're watching the game, You know, the tackling was bad, and I think a lot of people were alarmed by it. But was there any point of the game where you started to see, like, you saw a glimpse, or maybe do you just throw the whole thing out as a a fan? Yeah. You know, here's here's what troubled me the most was it looked like in the middle of the third quarter, people were dropping their heads on defense. And that really troubles me from, you know, playing football my whole life and seeing that happen personally when guys just throw in the towel, I didn't see Sewell or anyone step up and get in their yeah. players, in their teammates' faces saying, come on, let's go, let's go. Yeah, and, and, look, and look, I think that that is a big-time concern that there didn't seem to be a lot of leadership on the offensive side of the ball. Bo Nix did the same thing. Right before half, Stephen, I don't know what you thought, but right before half is Oregon goes to, you know, take this shot at the end zone. They were not in field goal range. They were just outside of it. They're going to take this shot at the end zone. They snap the ball to Bo Nix, and he kind of runs backwards doing a Tecmo Bowl-like, you know, quarterback move as he's kind of weaving left and right. I just thought he was going to run all the way to the locker room. Like, it was, he was done. Yeah, I mean, that was the thing we talked about. Bo Nix, he only threw three interceptions a season ago. We didn't think the spotlight would be too big on him, but it really looked like it was, right? Like, he was not right the entire time in the first half. I know that interception, the first one, may not have been his fault. It was a great defensive play, but that second one was just a terrible read by him, didn't look off anybody. And, yeah, I mean, he just made some you know decisions that you don't expect a guy like that who's had so much experience, especially against SEC teams, to make those type of mistakes. And so... Yeah, it was just weird. Like like that caller said, there was real, really no leadership on either side of the ball, and it was a little surprising to me. You know, I thought they'd be a little more ready, but, you know, I thought Georgia was going to win by a lot. I didn't think it was going to be this much, but, I mean, it, it was still shocking how Oregon came out and didn't really do anything from the start. Nothing. Let's go to Mike in Portland. Mike, what did you see? 
Well, John, uh, first of all, uh, Dan Lennon, man, I've been listening to social media, and they said that the one of the mistakes he made is that he should have put in Ty Thompson at the end because it was obvious they weren't going to win the game, so he should have did some developing. He didn't try to develop his backup quarterbacks. And I've heard people say that if he don't play these guys, they're going to turn against the Ducks. Now, I'm hearing that on social media. Mm. Also, you know, Bo Nix, man, he's been around, what, going on four years? And I'm thinking what I see is cronyism. I see that Bo Nick's daddy played football. He got connections. And because of his daddy's connections, Bo Nick is here at the Ducks. Not because he's a great player, but just simply because of that little cronyism thing that's going on. That's the reason uh, Dan Lannon is here, because he knows somebody. Not because he deserves to be here. And so we see what happens when you don't promote somebody based on merit. When you put somebody in a position based purely on, I mean, purely on who they know. This is what you get. And, John, when I was listening to that game, you know, I had on that record uh, that Al Pacino in, in a Scarface, Push It to the Limit. Mm. You know, man, you should listen to that record, man, when you listen, watch the Ducks. It says they there trying to crash the gates. It ain't going to happen. You're on the razor's edge. Don't look down because you're going to lose it. That's what happened. When you come back to the SEC, you are at the limit, and you ain't going to crash the gates. It just ain't going to happen. Anyway, John, yeah. I, I'll talk to you later, man. All right. Yeah, I appreciate the call. Um, I think there's questions about Dan Lanning's coaching, no doubt. I think the coaching staff looked like a first-year, first-game coaching staff in this game. And it wasn't just Dan Lanning. I think the offensive coordinator, Kenny Dillingham, uh, you know, where was the tempo? Where was the energy? Where was the creativity? I know it's hard to do those things when you've got a Georgia team, but I thought the very first play of the game was a nice little call, little outside run. They got to the corner. They got seven yards on it. I thought, okay, this is going to be fun. And then after that, Oregon looked like a team that was trying to bleed the game out. I didn't get it. I, I didn't see creativity. I did not see the wide receivers that I've heard so much about. It was just nothing memorable at all. Sam's in Portland. Sam, go ahead. John, I think you know, um, I told you earlier this summer, I made a new friend at the University of Oregon Athletic Department. And so through that friendship, I've, I vowed to or uh, say anything negative about the Ducks as long as that person is there. So I'm kind of lost today because, you know, I'm the biggest duck hater in the world, or used to be, and yesterday was the perfect day to be that person. But I think there's a lot of overreacting. You know, I mean, now, Ducks fans, you know how it feels to be a Beaver fan and what we've gone through. And, you know, look where we're at today. I, I think, John, I think Dan Lanning is smarter than everybody thinks he is. He probably knew he wasn't going to win this game, so he held everything, everything back. It was like a preseason game. He didn't want to show his hand, defensively or offensively. I, I, hope, I, I hope you're right, but my, I, suspect, I suspect, Sam, that they just got exposed and got exploited. And I think Kirby Smart was trying to be nice after the game when he said, you know, we have better players. I think he was trying to say, 
hey, this wasn't Dan Lanning laying an egg. But I don't blame anybody out there who saw the game and went, gosh, you know, is Oregon in over its head right now? Because it was bad. Sean is in Vancouver. Sean, go ahead. Hey, John. So um, I'm a Georgia fan, just so we're clear up front. Uh, So this is what I saw. I saw a young first-year head coach get punched in the face by his mentor. I saw um, a team that maybe wasn't as ready as they could have been. You know, and on top of that, I don't think there's a single team in the nation that was going to beat Georgia this week. They're, they got tired of hearing, you know, they're, that they've lost too many people, that they're not going to be what they were last year. And Kirby's been in his players' ears all offseason about that. You know, are you guys going to live up to this or are you not going to live up to this? And, you know, now we get to find out who Dan Lanning and the Ducks are because adversity is what tells you what, who a person really is and who a team really is. And if Dan Lanning is everything you want him to be, we'll find out next week. Um, you know, it's just Georgia isn't going to take it off anybody this season. Ohio State, Alabama, and Georgia are it. They're the elite of college football this year. There's nobody even near them. Yeah. So, I'm kind of wondering. You know, I appreciate the call. I'm kind of wondering. What do you guys think? Sean and Steven, question for you guys. Let's just say if we're trying to explain what happened on Saturday, that Oregon was overrated. Let's start there. And let's also add in that Georgia's pretty damn good, and the guys that were, uh, you know, even replaced the players that went in the draft are pretty good players. Uh, let's just assume those two things are true. Is there anybody in that ranking of, like, teams number 25 to 35 in college football that wouldn't have been blown off the field by a Georgia team that is going to have a shot at the playoff? Are, are we being too hard on Oregon is what I'm saying. Oregon was certainly overrated going into this game. I explained my theory that the only reason they were number 11 was so that ESPN could market this game. Uh, in reality, they're probably in the 20s somewhere. And I think you make a good point. Like, Georgia, that's a team that had all offseason to prep for this game. It's a team that's fired up, as the last caller said. They, you know, they have a chip on their shoulder, defending national champs, and they have all sorts of talent. And again, they spent all summer prepping for Oregon. So I don't think there's a single team... You know, once you hit the 20 range um, and beyond, that would have put on a fight. Now, do I was I disappointed in Oregon's performance? Definitely. Like, I thought, you know, it looked like JV versus varsity, which is inexcusable for the amount of talent that Oregon has on its roster. But still, I, you know, I think it's evident all across college football that, you know, just the disparity between your Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson, Georgia teams, and then some of the other programs that aren't quite on their level. It's always It always seems to be a blowout. This was a little bit more egregious. But I think you know a lot of teams would have went through what Oregon went through on Saturday. Yeah, I agree with I agree with you and Sean. Is that I think we're overacting a little bit to this. I, you know, I expected Georgia to dominate this game, but I think if you put Ole Miss against Georgia, Ole Miss twenty two in the AP poll right now, they're going to lose by you know three four touchdowns. I think same thing with Houston twenty five. So I think the Ducks belong right around in there. I thought it was a little a little egregious to put them outside of the top twenty five after one week with a brand new coach. A road game against Georgia, yeah, it was really bad, and it shouldn't have been that bad. But I think Oregon's going to bounce back. I know I looked at the Pac-12 odds to win. I mean, it went from about like 250, 260. Now it's all the way down to 4-1. to one. It seems like a little bit of an overreaction to week one with a brand-new coach, brand-new quarterback, a lot of new pieces on both sides of the ball. I mean, I still think Oregon is you know, maybe the most talented team, if not the second most talented team in the Pac-12. So I think it's a lot of overreaction to playing one of the top two teams in the nation. 
Yeah, I, I think there's some of that going on. I also think this Pac-12 field is wide open. I think Utah's still the best team. But I think we're going to learn something this week is Stanford is hosting USC. Uh, Washington's opponent is Portland State. We're going to talk to Bruce Barnum coming up. Mike Leach at 4 o'clock. You'll want to be here. It's a taped interview. It happened last night after midnight. Leach went for a walk with his dog. He called me. I said, hold on. We got to roll on this. And I taped 24 minutes with Mike Leach as he walked his dog. You're going to want to be here at 4 o'clock for that. In the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to focus on Oregon State's opponent, Fresno State. Cam Worrell, former NFL defensive back, played at Fresno State. He's a guy who can explain the mentality of the typical Fresno State player who's itching to line up and suit up against a Pac-12 opponent. We'll talk about it all next with Bruce Barnum. More of your phone calls as well. Lines are open. 503-417-7575. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, Portland State damn near did it. Playing at what was Spartan Stadium. They almost upset San Jose State over the weekend, which would have been really nice to go with that $450,000 check or whatever it was that they collected from San Jose State. This week, they'll go to Washington. They'll make half a million dollars to do it. But Bruce Barnum is not in this for the moral victories. He joins us now to talk about the upcoming game. First of all, uh, how did you feel about the performance against San Jose State? Um, Hey, John, thanks for having us. Um... Uh, too many mistakes. Uh, I like the team I saw. Uh, tough fight, support. You know, um, quarterback, new quarterback, played really well. Made some throws like he's a senior. Then made, you know, two throws that he wants back. We all want back, and um, uh, look, he looked like a you know first first game guy, but. Uh, I have a good football team, you know. Uh, you know my world. I'm stuck in these two, quote, money game FBS, you know, while everybody else in my conference is, you know, purchasing, you know, buying their their money games to play uh, FCS opponents and getting wins. We're not doing that. Now, we almost snuck one. I uh, wish we had it. We, we would have, but we didn't, which just means, you know, the playoffs are going to be a little bit, more work in the back end, but I saw a good football team on my side. You know, uh, we had trouble running the football just because of some size up front uh, that we didn't match. But um, um, I like what we saw. We almost got out of there. We almost snuck one. Yeah, and I think you had him worried. Which you know, you've done this before. You've won some of these games. I think you had him worried a little bit. Health-wise, how did you come out of the game? Knock on wood, we are scot-free. Everybody's rolling. John, that's huge. Yeah, and those are, that's big, and I don't think people think about it because you've had some games, you know, let's go back to 2018, that Washington game. I think it was 2018 you played them. That team was headed to uh, the playoff. Yeah, they and, were in the Final Four that year. Yeah, and, you know, they didn't just beat you guys. They beat you guys up. Yes, they did. Yeah, and some things happened in this game, John. I, I had a couple situations that changed some play calls because – Injuries, I didn't want to get worse, you know. I wasn't going to sell the farm to beat San Jose. Uh, it, it made me call some things on offense. I, you know, probably wouldn't have called in those situations, but I was, you know, I was protecting my team a little bit. 
protecting you, my people. Yeah, and you, as you should, uh, you turn the focus now to Washington. What did you see on film? You watched film of them playing Kent State, I'm sure. We did. I uh, watched that. I actually watched it on TV. Uh, you know, we've got some of their Fresno stuff from last year. And, um, number one, you know, because you hear all the noise. I read your stuff, and you try to keep up on college football while you're in the fishing boat. And You know, everybody, first comment, Jen Cohen, their AD. I mean, I think, you know, everybody was up for, or was, you know, questioning her. Yeah. I think she had a grand slam I and mean, everybody thought it was going to be a boring deal and i mean watching watching them from snap one you know they pick off a ball and you saw on tv those that watched it you saw a disciplined football team didn't make a lot of mistakes i like their quarterback you know they did some things um and they're fast uh, they have makeup speed i didn't see that last week uh, what they do have is makeup speed. If you do this, you know, they're giving you this, but they close on it quick. And not just one of their guys, their entire defense, talking defensively. Um, you know, they have some guys that I thought were their best players that aren't starting for them. That tells you tells me something. <laughs> you know, uh, you got even better, huh? But uh, they're a good football team. They're fast all across the board. And... Um, um, they look good. They look in week five, not week one. I think they're a team. You know, after, I mean, we've looked at that thing and broke it down. We have it in, you know, all these different clips, different looks. Um, I don't, because I watched the other ones, John. It was, it was an odd day, you know, because we played Thursday. I get everybody off Saturday. We worked till noon and got home, and I watched football. It was, it was like Disneyland yeah. combined with Disney World and fishing. <laughs> <laughs> in the Oki Finoki swamp, I was in heaven, and I'm DVR, and I got one on a computer because you can, you know, you can go on there, John, and ESPN Plus. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah. You can go on there and turn those games on. So I'm watching Big Sky, yada yada. I watched everybody except I didn't see USC, Pac-12. Is I'm talking. All right. I didn't see either of the Arizonas. I saw some highlights. But watching this team, if, if they stay healthy, I'm talking about the Huskies, and this will upset the state of Oregon because, you know, that's who I support, yada, yada. But um, they'll be in the Pac-12 championship. I think that's who they have up there and how they're running it right now. Wait a minute. You think Washington is good enough to get to Vegas to play for that championship of the conference? Yes. You can you can say that on your radio show. We're live, right? I'm going to tweet it. There I'm going to tweet it. They're going to read it. They're going to feel good about themselves, and they're going to like you when you walk into that stadium. No, they're not. They're not going to like it. You know what yeah. we thought about? I can't do it, but they got some really good players. And one Zion is Zion. I think he's one of their best. And, uh, I think he's 58. We're going to put, like, on the sideline, you know how everybody has those cards, John? Yeah. I was going to put, like, you can't call their names. So I was going to put, you know, it's a tricky deal. I was going to put, like, Zion Bank, you know, Zion in big letters. And then have the NCAA portal transfer thing. And then have, like, uh, you know, Dodge Pretzels and uh, my NIL offer to him. And then just go through the whole team during the game. But my staff said I couldn't do that. Help me out with something here. Um, Jimmy Lake coached this team a year ago. A lot of his guys are back. They were not very good on the field. It was hard to tell if they quit midseason or maybe they checked out after they lost to Oregon. I don't know what happened there. But 
you know, you're watching film from last year, film from this year. Is were there any noticeable differences in just you know, was it scheme? Was it energy? What was the difference? Um, that one's hard, you know, because I didn't really watch. I watched last year for personnel only mm. because of the coaching change. You know what I mean? Um, we watched Fre Fresno to you know see what uh, this staff was going to do. Yeah. Um, and then honestly, I gave guys you know Saturday off for the most part after going through our game and you know setting up um, things for the week because we didn't really I, you didn't really know what they were going to do you know at Washington yeah they did this at Fresno but okay now he's got new people who's he going to you know put and in certain spots what's he going to do and you know so that's a tough one that's a tough one the uh, you know is there is there anything that scares you about Washington or is it just overall they were impressive in general? Or is there one facet that you left Saturday going, man, they're really good in this area? Well, uh, it was you, I was able to watch when I watched the entire game. I could see both sides. I usually don't do that. I'm usually a, you know focus on our defense guy. But uh, I mean, uh, the Golden Flashers, you know, <laughs> they throw a pop. You know, everybody's throwing RPOs and. The hair guy, also or somebody who didn't even play last year very much. Now he's one of the starting safeties in the back end. He picks the ball off, you know. And then you, okay, they had a quarterback situation. They had a, uh, a lot of talent in that room. How they choose this guy? And then you see them come out and just, I mean, they did everything right. They didn't make mistakes. Um, so they're being coached very well. Number one. Then you saw their speed because in, you know, uh, there's one play. I don't know what number it is. Um, on our cutups, but they're Mike linebacker. You know, usually you say, "Oh, you know, these guys are really fast." He's four. They're Mike linebacker. I think he's on opposite in the field, and he gets tricked. You know, with a, a misdirection, <laughs> he redirects and makes the play on another side for like plus two. I'm like, okay, that guy's kind of fast. You know, yeah. and that's against a team that's supposed to be faster than us. You know, the, uh, the Kent Staters. But uh, we'll try to put some things together. And, Hopefully they make a couple mistakes, you know, and uh, uh, hopefully they're looking. Who who do they have next? Michigan State. Yeah, maybe yeah. they're looking by you, looking past you. Uh, uh, they, I, they should be, you know, they should be. Once if we get that and get a perfect storm coming in, don't make yeah. any mistakes we did last week. You got a chance maybe to see a little bit of Idaho. They were playing against Washington I did. State. I did. I watched that one. I watched the. I caught the second half of that one. I think. Okay, it, it surprised me that Washington State struggled with them. Um, I think it surprised the country, you know. I think you saw Washington State defense, and I think in the third quarter, close to the third quarter, they had uh, the Vandals at 168 yards. So you knew their defense. Well, just look at the statistics. You knew, that, you knew their defense was playing well, you know, against Idaho. Um, I didn't know about the turnovers early because I turned it on late, you know. Yeah. And the turnovers, I guess Idaho got some, popped a couple off turnovers. But, yeah, I mean, you're expecting um, a Pac-12 team versus an FCS team. Uh, you're expecting them to, you know, be handled pretty much. But it sounds like, statistic-wise, Washington State's offense, you know, must have sputtered a bit. Unless I, you, know, you look at it, and you know, what is the deal? Is it because Idaho has a hell of a defense, or is it, you know, yeah. were, were they able to do that? You know, so you have to look at those things and personnel and 
who they have, but Idaho lost a lot of guys in their defense too. Uh, so I was kind of looking at that, but that score surprised me. That, that situation surprised me, honestly. Bruce Barnum with us, Portland State football coach. All right, there's a lot of overreaction going on, especially with the Duck fans right now. Oh, I know. Uh, I saw. I, I didn't all see right. all that when I. I mean, he was out of hand already. So I'm like, oh, geez, yeah. geez Um I, I I caught some of it. I watched it just. Uh, I was kind of curious what they were doing on offense and defense, you know, schematically. But the score was already out of hand by the time I found that game. It was hard for me because I think personnel-wise, Oregon was overmatched. So it's hard for me Weren't to... Weren't you at that one? Yes. Okay. They're overmatched. Everything was easy for Georgia. They couldn't... You know, the, comf- the quarterback was so comfortable, he could have had a chair back there. And, you know, everybody was open by 10 yards. It, right. It felt personnel-driven. So it's hard for me to criticize and go, they were out-coached. Because I'm not sure if you flip the coaching staffs one side or the other if Georgia doesn't do the same thing. Right. It's not the X's and O's. It's the Jinnies and Joes. They, you know, they, that 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 rhyme has always been with it. And uh, you know, I think you notice it in, in the big people, you know. Uh, you, you, we played Arkansas. They were, you know, they were down that year as far as SEC the year I played them. But I looked at their D-line. <laughs> John, I said, okay, you guys are the worst in the SEC. What are we talking here? <laughs> I mean, they had – I watched them stretch because they had one guy who the, who the scouts told me, oh, he's a, he's a guy, but, you know, yada, yada. Barney, you should be able to handle him. So I go over and sit in the bench while they're stretching because I'm just scared. Okay, what, who exactly are you? And I saw that guy stretching. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, are you kidding me? We're going to handle this guy. That scout's probably not working this year. <laughs> You know, yeah. Have you seen my guys? But I think that's the biggest difference, personally. I I uh, am wishing you well this week. I want Thank you guys you. to stay healthy. Um, I know that there were some kids from the BFT Foundation who went to the game at San Jose State. I got some notes from your. You had some fans there uh, that were at the summer camp. So I want you to know your guys are supported and good luck to you this week. Pick up the check. Try to pick up a W. Thank you, and we took care of that guy, the guy that bought at the BFT auction. Yeah. Um, I forget his last name. Houston, Rusty, Houston. yeah. Rusty something. Uh, yeah. He's set. We got him set up. I awesome. Mean, and people are going to have to look at this next year. You look at our schedule and see what you want to buy with the BFT because he's, uh, I mean, he's going to He's on the sideline with you guys. He's on the sideline. He's at the hotel. His feet are going to be up. I mean, he's living the life. <laughs> I love living it. Living the right. life. Give some money to BFT. What the hell? All right. Good luck to you, Coach. Thanks. Thank you. All yeah. right. Bruce Barnum, Portland State coach, he's talking about the uh, BFT's uh, annual uh, foundation auction in Radiothon. Uh, the winner last year got to bid on sideline passes for the Portland State-Washington game. So the winner's uh, taken uh, his son to the game. He's going to be on the sideline with the Vikings up at Husky Stadium. Our big splash is coming up. I want more of your phone calls. It's your turn to weigh in. Mike Leach coming up top of the hour. you got to hear that. You got the bald-faced truth. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. Hi, 3417 is the number. Top of the hour, you're going to hear Mike Leach, okay? It's a taped interview. I want to tell you, like, full disclosure... He calls me last night after midnight, his time. He's walking his dog, Mike Leach. 
walking his dog. We have a 25-minute or so conversation. Uh, I said to him, hey, I need to tape this. It's too good. And so I taped the interview. You're going to hear Mike Leach after midnight. Mike Leach after dark coming up top of the hour. Um, let's do the big splash. It's the one thing that you need to know. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. But the big splash. Well, Georgia's up to number two in the poll in the AP Top 25. The Florida Gators moved in at number 12. Both of those programs beat Pac-12 teams. Georgia blasted Oregon. Florida got by Utah. Very uncharacteristic mistake by Cam Rising at the end of that game. But Florida looked good. Georgia looked great. Ohio State's the big loser. They slipped to number three in the poll, even though they got two first-place votes. Michigan's at number four. Clemson down to number five. That's how it shook out. Oregon not ranked. The Pac-12 penalized by voters. Uh, USC at number 10 is the highest ranked team in the Pac-12. Utah is at 13. Beyond that, it is a whole lot of nothing. Oregon State uh, did not crack the top 25 despite a win over Boise State. Uh, let's, Let's hang on to the phone calls. Mike Leach is coming up. All right. Again, last night after midnight his time. Mike Leach says, hey, uh, I'm walking my dog. You, you got time for a call. I eventually told him we got to roll on this. We got to do an interview. And Mike Leach walking his dog coming up right here on this show. Uh, it is a real treat, and uh, I'm glad that you're here for it. So we'll take more of your phone calls also in the 4 o'clock hour. 5 o'clock hour will be Cam Worrell, former Fresno State defensive back, played in the NFL five or six seasons. Really good analysis of what Fresno State is and what Oregon State is up against as they travel to what used to be Bulldog Stadium in uh, Fresno, California for a game that should be in the, uh, you know, temperatures should push towards the 90s during the day. Who knows what it will be when they kick that game off on Saturday night. Up next, Mike Leach. BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. Mike Leach, Mississippi State football coach, friend of this show. He is currently walking his dog. Uh, and it's good to know you do that. You don't have a person that does that for you? No. Uh, no, we got the dog recently. It's. Uh, it's a British lab. She's really well trained, and it was, um, so it was a situation where uh, one of the guys that ran the kennel, um, you know, it's had some problems at the house, and you know, he just needed to kind of downsize and get a place for the dog. So instead of the dog staying in the kennel there at the kennels, you know, he wanted to have a good home. So it's it's trained like crazy. She can do anything. And so, yeah, it's pretty cool. Kind of a new adventure. And uh, so, yeah, she'll walk always on your left side if you insist on it. She'll fetch anything. The, the best is watching her swim out in the water and haul all kinds of stuff back. Um, she'll uh, sit. Oh, she'll stay. And, yeah, you know, you can 
see her twitching up because she really wants to go chase whatever you throw. <laughs> but she'll stay until you say go. And so pretty clever. Did you have, like, when you were growing up as a kid, did you, uh, you strike me as a guy who probably had a dog as a kid. Yeah, we did. Had quite a few. We lived out of town uh, in Wyoming on 10 acres. And uh, one visual that's a really good one, it wasn't always like this. Um, but we had a Labrador. We had a yellow tomcat. We had a raccoon and a Vichla short hair. <laughs> and they would all hang out together. Love that. You know, wandering around the house. You know, not the house so much, but the front yard. Uh, you know, pretty much did everything together. Um, once in a great while, the cat would get a little tired of it and go off on his own. But... Uh, he would always rejoin his buddies and hang out for the most part. We just got through week one. Uh, obviously, massive overreaction by fans and media to wins and losses. You've been at this a long time. You had you had good week ones. You've had some bad week ones. Uh, what's what's the right reaction? You know when when you when you have a week one or as a coach, how do you approach that? Well. Nobody wants to be judged by their exclusively by their week one. Um, I think teams uh, improve the most the first three games. Everybody says the first one, and probably, yeah, the most that single game, but the first three games. I mean, after three games, uh, you know, and not even winning all three of them, but the teams that are improving all three of them, those are the guys that are going to be pretty good in the end. And because uh, uh, everybody's got a lot of work to do, and you don't always know how it's uh, it's going to spill out. But uh, in our case, this was one of the better first games that we've had, and I get that by – I felt like we played well. I felt like we were on the same page. There was a hollow spot the second half where we took our foot off the gas. Um, but then we did finish well. And uh, and you know, but in particular, playing together and we're relatively consistent for a first outing, but still plenty of work because that's what you. First game, you identify all kinds of things you got to fix, and we certainly did. But uh, I thought a good start. I mean, the important thing is to fix and don't panic if uh, <clears throat> if it went bad, and uh, if it went good, do not hesitate to hammer on them next week in practice. <laughs> Because that's just the nature well, you got something all figured out. And football, under the best of circumstances, is played in adversity and pain. And so it's always 
you know, tempting to relax and, you know, that type of thing. And we don't have time for any of that. The Pac-12 in its last nine against the SEC is in opening weeks is one and eight. Uh, Florida took care of Utah in a tough one. Oregon got boat raced. Uh, I was in Atlanta. It was interesting just to see the physicality of Georgia, a good SEC team. You're you're around that now, and you know the Pac-12. What what is that gap like in, in your mind when you see, you know, the physicality that you see at week to week in the SEC? Um, I don't think there's much with the skill guys. There may not be any. Um, with the defense line in particular, especially the D line, it's significant. I think that, um, and I've thought this for a long time, the SEC, what they do better than any other conference is, you know, everybody wants to say the skilled guys. Well, I mean, there's been skilled guy after skilled guy after skilled guy that's up the SEC that's from California or Texas, you know. Um, no, it's defensive linemen. The defensive linemen in the SEC region, there's a lot of them. They're really good. Statistically, they put more in the NFL um, than any other comp. Uh, by them, he the quarterback getting to the backfield. Um, it uh, speeds up the plays a little bit and makes it feel faster. Um, I always felt like uh, most teams um, in the in most conferences, I would include, with your exception, the. Uh, uh, the Big 12, too. Um, you'd have like one or two flat-out bonafide defensive linemen, you know, real-deal defensive linemen. Now, you'd be lining other people up there, certainly. But um, some of those guys are kind of uh, the meaner, quicker guard type of guy because you need somebody there. Or, you know, the bigger linebacker type of guy. Um, a lot of teams in the SEC can line up with four to six just bonafide D linemen. And I think uh, that's where the biggest difference is. You guys will go to Arizona this week. It's uh, you know this Arizona team is uh, really different. I mean, fifty new players this year. He's got fifty new guys. What you know when you look at you know your turnover year to year, have you had years where you had fifty new players? Yeah, every time I took a new job. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. Uh, I don't know. Our first couple of years here. Um, you know, one thing I never really heard mentioned much, it was kind of an interesting dynamic that people didn't really think of. Um, during the COVID madness, uh, you know, they gave everybody an extra year. 
And so if you had a lot of seniors, some people people had as many as 98 guys on scholarship. The total slow, you know, is typically 85, but all grandfathered in with the extra year because of COVID. So as many as 98, we had 78. We just didn't have many seniors. And uh, so I think that in some cases, you know, there were a few kind of aberrations perhaps just because of how stuff stacked up in sequence. This year will be uh, interesting because everybody's back to 85, you know? Yeah. The Jaden Delora, you get, you know, you recruited that kid uh, at Washington State. You'll see him on the other side at Arizona. Is uh, that happen a lot? Like when you, I guess it does because it's guys that maybe you get, guys that get in the portal, guys that go other places. But you must have saw saw something you liked in him as a high school kid. Obviously, oh, I really liked him. <clears throat> I really liked, uh, you know, I mean, I, I recruited him to. Washington State, and then, you know, I took the job at Mississippi State. Uh, and, uh, you know, kind of one of my reservations in doing that was not having the chance to coach Jaden Delora, uh, Delora, you know. Yeah. And I think he's a good player. I think he's a tough kid. Uh, obviously, I've liked him since high school. Thought he looked pretty good the first game. Yeah, they. You know, when you look at film of them, and I know you you guys do your game planning on Monday nights. Um, you know, you put together a game plan. How much of it of your game plan is based on what they're doing versus maybe what you're doing? Well, we always hear coaches say, "Hey, we don't want to change what we do," but you, they obviously do when an opponent comes in. So, how does that amalgam come together when you're game planning? Well, you try to match it up. I mean, if you have a good package, if you have a good offensive package, and what I think a good package is, is uh, one that you have the ability to first attack the whole field. And by the whole field, I mean sideline to sideline to about 30 or 35 yards downfield. Because... Um, I'm going up a hill. Uh, your pass protection is going to break down somewhere around three to three and a half seconds if you have a blocker for everybody and you do a pretty good job, which, you know, I don't have anybody that uh, can... Uh, everybody says, can you throw it 60 yards? Well, I mean, can you pass protect that long? <laughs> I mean, do you have somebody on your team that can run 60 yards in three and a half seconds consistently? Because, you know, after that, it's a broken play. And, you know, Different stuff can happen on broken plays, but, you know, maybe a rollout, you have to hold it, they go clear downfield, but, you know, you can't constantly be trying 
to manufacture that. I mean, because you just can't mass produce it. So uh, you want to attack the whole field. You want to get it in everybody's hands. Uh, and it has to be simple enough that uh, you can consistently execute it. So then within that, you know, the other team's going to have, you know, a defensive scheme. Usually they have a package, not always. Sometimes you find somebody that's just calling defense. You know, there's rolling stuff out there that doesn't necessarily complement uh, what they're trying to do. And you see guys on offense do that too sometimes. But, uh, and so then you try to find your stuff that matches up, whether it's mismatches or space, with what they're trying to do. And in many cases, you want to have a lot of options, not just, okay, we're going to call this because the third read might be open. You know, it needs to be something like, Okay, uh, you know, they're going to cover somebody, but we have a good shot of any of these three routes being open. Um, and, uh, you know, whether it's numbers or leverage. Numbers means <clears throat> I have more numbers than you. I mean, we have three receivers right there. You have two defenders. Uh, leverage means... Okay, they're inside shade, so I want to go outside. They're outside shade, so I want to go inside. They're playing off, so I want to go underneath. They're playing tight, so I want to go behind. Um, and you, you're trying to pick out and practice what you think is uh, best going to attack that and give you a variety of options. Now, if you see something that you don't expect which you certainly could because, you know, it seems to me in a lot of cases, not all, um, sometimes they'll just run whatever they feel is their best defense. Sometimes they'll go into it and they're going to say, all right, we're going to pressure these guys. Okay, now if you respond pretty good to the pressure, then a lot of times they'll go the opposite. See, now we're going to drop everybody. Well, if you respond well to that, then a lot of times you get them kind of just dialing up both of it to try to keep you off balance. Now, if you don't respond to it, they're going to just keep running it and pound on you. And um, so you're trying to um, – so if they do something you don't expect, you know, and the game would say you thought they were going to drop now they're blitzing, well, your package should have some blitz beaters, you know, depending on how they do it, where they come from, how they set up their defense. And so you got to be flexible enough to start attacking with that. I was uh, in a restaurant the other day, and we uh, were waiting for a table, and, you know, they said, hey, you know, we're short-staffed. And I was thinking about this. My wife and I were debating why – the workforce has uh, has a has a hole in it. Like literally, 
there is, you know, businesses are saying we, we can't find employees. Everybody's hiring. Uh, wh- what happened to the workforce? Because I told my wife, I said, you know who's going to know? Mike Leach is going to know because I know well, you've, you've I thought about it. <laughs> I don't know exactly. I think, um, I don't know exactly. In some cases, somebody did an article and added it up that through, you know, everything from welfare grants, various federal aids, you know, you can generate eighty to 90000 a year, which is higher than the average American income. So, you know, a bunch of those guys below that are just getting paid better the way we've structured our federal welfare system. Uh, I also think there's a little bit of a hangover from uh, COVID. I mean, COVID made people bitter. It locked them up. Uh, Couldn't wait to have their freedom and get out. But I think there's a little bit, and I would feel it occasionally myself, where there's kind of a little bit of a relief to some irresponsibility if you want to stay home that day or finish a series of something or other on Netflix. And I think some of it's just uh, getting people in stride in the routine of going to work, enjoying it, and finding it fulfilling. Uh, The other thing in some cases employers have uh, kind of the reverse it's uh, stay home we don't want you here we don't want to pay this this and this uh, you send us your reports or be on the phone calls type of thing with zoom so i think it's just kind of in a lot of cases getting the momentum going again and uh so you know i mean if you get paid more to be unemployed a lot of people will be you know we're talking to Mike Leach, Mississippi State football coach. All right, before I cut you loose, uh, you know, Arizona, as you look at them on film, what do you see? Uh, I think, well, first of all, they had a really good first game. I thought they played hard. Uh, you know, I think they've gotten definitely a year better. Uh, they've got some speed at key uh, skill positions. And then the other thing, you know, it's funny, you, know, you wonder, but uh, some of the guys, their sizes that they have listed are pretty darn big. We'll see if they're actually that big, and maybe they are. Maybe they're even <laughs> bigger. Well, like Nebraska it, used to yeah. list, list their guys as this big. They'd list some guy uh, 6'2", 285. Like hell, the guy was 6'2", 280. That guy'd be 6'6", 320 pounds, you know. <laughs> and then you'd have other schools kind of more grandstanders and you'd shave off a couple inches and you know 25 pounds and that's what they were you know what's the worst case you ever saw where where a guy was not as advertised uh, i don't know there's definitely been some i mean there's so many that it's hard to pinpoint one <laughs> you know we're we're not very good here i mean i'd love, love to tell you the size you know we we don't typically exaggerate um you know 
they, you know, they're doing the roster. How big's this guy? Well, sometimes the SID and the assistant strength coach are kind of eyeballing it. Well, I think he's about this or that. And occasionally we exaggerate. Usually it's understated. And then the other thing that'll happen is sometimes from their sophomore or their freshman year to their senior year, it never gets changed. So hmm. the guy early stays the exact same size, you know. Um, it just depends how much you focus on it. You miss- Some coaches are obsessed with it, want it to dead on perfect, and their weights will fight no matter what. Uh, others want to make them bigger, think it'll scare the other guy, uh, especially teams that are highly touted and highly billed. Um, you know, they want to psych you out with, you know, the guy's only this big and he comes out and he's a monster, you know. Before I let you go, the playoff expansion, the realignment, couple Pac-12 schools in the Big Ten. I don't like, uh, you know, I don't like the uh, geography not being lined up with conferences, but I get why the Pac-12 ended up there. Um, it's out of your control. It's a lot out of every coach's control. But what do you make of what's happening in college football right now? Oh, I'm care. First of all, I don't think they're done. Because a lot of this is uh, impetuous decisions based on keeping up with the Joneses. And as soon as you attach the name university to something, everybody acts like it's brilliantly well thought out. And some aren't, (laughs) some aren't. But, hey, I remember distinctly when, um, you know, in the Big East. And, I mean, there wasn't this they talked about it. No, no, TCU joined the Big East. Boise State joined the Big East. And I think San Diego State joined the Big East. <laughs> and they're in there about eight months, and then they came to their senses and they left. <laughs> but um, I don't know. I'm just thinking that, you know, I've, I think uh, under even circumstances, uh, UCLA, USC certainly capable of competing with the Big Ten, but I'd consider this. Uh, those guys have to take five trips over two to three time zones uh, a year, and uh, their opponents their opponents only have to take uh, less than one every other year. So, you know, that fifth trip flying back, trying to figure out, you know, I mean, it's a pretty taxing deal. Mike Leach, you're the best. I appreciate you coming on with us. We'll get you later in the season. Miss talking to you, and I know people in the Pacific Northwest uh, especially miss hearing from you on the show. So thanks for doing this. Yeah, call any time. I probably won't have a cough next time. (laughs) I might, but I probably won't. Mike Leach walking his dog. That's why you come to the BFT. I want you to leave it right here. you got the bald face truth statewide. to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, there was Mike Leach in all his glory, 12.30 in the morning, taking his dog for a walk. He sent me a picture of the dog today. <laughs> Should I tweet out the picture of the dog? Does anybody want to see it? I always want to see a photo of a dog. Just looks like a you know lab to me, black lab to me. But you probably uh, get some great numbers. People do love dogs. I, all right, I'll tweet it out here. If you ever wondered what Mike Leach's dog looked like, or what's the right language with the tweet? Anna's popped into the studio as well. I want everybody's suggestion on what I should tweet. 
let's collectively come up with what would really work when it comes to Mike Leach's dog. Have you ever uh, wondered what a pirate's dog looks like? Here it is. <laughs> <laughs> let's think long and hard on this one. Uh, I think the copy would be, here's Mike Leach's dog. Because Mississippi State is the Bulldogs, so I wonder if you can, you know, mm. do something with that, you know? How many Bulldogs are there? I mean, I feel like the Bulldog Samford. in general. Samford. It's going to be Bulldog Gonzaga. on Bulldog crime coming up yeah, I, this like, weekend. How many schools have Bulldogs as their mascot? I, I like, feel like there's more Wildcats and Cougars than Bulldog mascots, don't you for think? For sure. Tigers. Yeah, Tigers. Some variation of the Tiger. But uh, Bulldog is very popular. Should there only be each, like, only one for, like, you know, each animal can only be represented by one major college program? I don't know if we need to have some hard and fast rules. It, I just, I feel like we're talking a lot about Bulldogs. It, it caused a big problem last year. How when so? When Georgia won the national championship, yeah. Twitter does a weird thing. When you win a national title, they give you the hashtag. Mm-hmm. So the hashtag, go dogs, D-A-W-G-S, when you use that hashtag on Twitter, yeah. the Georgia emblem pops up with it. The trouble is University of Washington also Husties. uses Go Dogs. Right. So they were upset that yeah. Georgia got it, but Twitter explained when you win a national championship, you can have it back. Right. So that, or Huskies. Go figure out one that's more specific to the Huskies. Go Husky. What like. was really weird was when LSU and Clemson, both Tigers, played each other in the uh, the 2019 championship. <laughs> Should have been in the Frosted Flakes Bowl. So I have, I have the official list of the most common uh, mascot names for four-year colleges. Look at you, Ooh. researcher. Yeah, that's what I Fast finger Steven, we're going to call you. Steven, <laughs> Steven f- finally found something he's really into. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, oh, I got this. Let me get on that. <laughs> I, I get motivated by the weirdest things. Stronger that's for work sure. ethic than me. Yeah. Don't we all, Steven? I'm a great Don't Googler, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, number one is that the Eagles. Eagles number one, Hawks two, Eagles. Tigers three, Lions four, Bulldogs five. Five. Samford is playing Georgia this weekend. They're both the Bulldogs. Yeah, Samford. Who's got you got Samford in fifty two? Stephen, let look at good. Yeah, give me, <laughs> no one else is going to take them in the world. Why would anybody take Samford? So yeah, I'll be on Samford's side. It doesn't feel like it's enough points. I don't know why. Maybe because I was there and I saw Oregon get boat raced. And there's no amount of points that would make me feel safe uh, in a game against Georgia. I need you to ask Kirby Smart how long he's going to play the starters for for me. Thank you. Ooh. At, at would... what point did you know, John? That what was happening on Saturday for me it was the uh, the hur- the hurdle by their big tight end or the pick that that first pick by Malachi the, Starks to me the first pick was okay that first pick and I don't know if they showed play. this on television but it was a bad route by Seven McGee it was a sloppy route first of all and then it was Bo Nix he threw the ball he should have thrown the ball to the sideline it doesn't get intercepted the guy made a fantastic play. But to me, the, the, the backbreaker was the second pick. It was, Oregon was driving. I think if they could have got some points there, they would have felt better about themselves going into halftime, that they could have got seven maybe. And he just threw the ball right to the Georgia defender, and it went the other way. The game was over at that point. Anna, what was it like for you to be in the stadium? Because I, for me, I've been there for blowouts. Yeah. You felt all the hype and the anticipation, and then – letdown I know and for me the harbinger was at the end of the first quarter when somebody in the press box said 
game's still not over, but kind of in that tone yeah. that implied it kind of might be over. It was over. It was, oh, man. And, you know, I was with everybody else. I was really rooting for Oregon. I, I was. I know you're not supposed to, like, do that in the press they, box. They right? announced that, in fact, Multiple in the press times. box. Every quarter, There's some no voice rooting. of God comes on and, and, like, really tells you, like, this is a working press box. No one's to be Damn cheering it. or applauding the, the action on the field. And um, So, I, I mean, I, I, I was like a lot of people thinking that Oregon would at least be competitive and that it would be a good game. And I was, you know, hoping really for the whole Pac-12 that there would be a good showing. And I, uh, I wouldn't say that I was as crushed as everybody else. Like, I, I won't say that I was as crushed as some of my Oregon Duck fan friends. But I was disappointed, not just for Oregon, but, yeah, for the, for the whole conference because it is such an important time. Do you have a lot of Duck fan friends, Anna? I, I do. All right. Do. So but you also have Beaver fan friends. And I noticed we had a call earlier in the show from a Beaver fan who said, now the Duck fans know what we feel like. I thought that was a really interesting take by the Beaver fan. Um, I don't. I think it was worse than, than most things that I've seen happen to Oregon State because of the anticipation and the hope. Yeah, it, the higher the hope, the greater the fall kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, but bad. I think Beavers fans look over at Ducks fans and are like, well, come on. Now now you know what it's – we know how to take a loss. Can you take a loss? Yeah. Can you take a bad loss? That's what the Beaver fans yeah. say. Never say it's easy to be a Duck fan because it's – you know, if it's not the blowout losses that they've been experiencing recently, you know, four out of the last five have been blowout losses for Oregon – you know, in a season where they do have expectations and, you know, could potentially make the playoff, they always get that one heartbreaking loss to, you know, Arizona or Washington State or Stanford, yeah. a team like that. So it's uh, I don't want to hear that it's easy being a Duck fan. Not that you guys are saying it, but I, I have heard that narrative before. I, I, I Guys, i got to tell you something else, too, because this stadium that the Atlanta Falcons play in, Mercedes-Benz Stadium, is fantastic. It is beautiful. It is a gorgeous stadium. I think... The Raiders stadium and this stadium, neck and neck, as far as the two NFL stadiums that I've seen lately, that just blow you away. It was gorgeous inside the stadium. The press box was gorgeous. I, I felt bad because I tell Anna when I travel, I'm like, you know, I'm here in this press box. We're slaving away and, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm walking over the gate. But we go into this press box, guys. They are serving like a five-star meal. <laughs> it was the Chick-fil-A bowl, so they had Chick-fil-A sandwiches, all you could eat. And then they had a lady who was in charge of like a soft serve frozen yogurt machine. And she was there to put toppings on and give you a fro-yo and whatnot. Now, I didn't get one, but I kept saying to Anna, you know, you're going to get a fro-yo? Like every time Georgia would score, you, you up for a little uh, Sunday or whatnot. And I, I, it isn't going to help me when I'm on the road later in the season and she's home with the kids and I go, oh, it was such a hard day at work. She'll be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. How was that Sunday? <laughs> yeah. Poor you. <laughs> Getting started. And it was really funny, like, watching, you know, all the press guys. They're very focused on the food. It's like there's a buzz that goes around when the nachos come around in the third quarter. Hey, there's nachos. Everybody gets really excited. But you know how it is when you're traveling and you're adding work onto that, you kind yeah. of, you indulge in the simple pleasures like food. Right? I Hey, look, let's let's talk about both things here, Oregon and Oregon State. Yeah. It was the day belonged to the discussion about Oregon and the disappointment, but the night belonged to Oregon State. They punched Boise State right in the nose, and to their credit, they finished the game 
34-17 was the final. This may not be Chris Peterson's Boise State, but this was exactly the kind of game the Pac-12 lost a year ago. I was a little surprised that Oregon State didn't pop up, you know, 24th or 25th in the AP poll today. They got a couple of votes here or there. Uh, Pete Martini of the uh, Salem paper gave them a vote, but not many others. Um, should Oregon State have been in the top 25, guys? Uh, I'm going to go with no on this one. Not quite yet. I think if they beat Fresno, then it's a yes. But, uh, I mean, it, again, I try not to overreact too much after week one, so I don't want to overreact and put Oregon State in the top 25 after they got no votes uh, preseason. So I think they got to beat Fresno State. If they do that, then yeah, for sure they do belong. Yeah, I agree with Steven. I think it's a no for now because of the way their season ended last year. You know, last year was a good season for them, but at the end of the day, you have to remember that they lost to Utah State in that final game. And before that, they lost to Oregon. So, um, you know, I think you know, it's kind of a combination of this season and, you know, expectations for this year and also what you've been as a program the last couple of years. And recency bias doesn't really favor Oregon State because they had a rough end of last season. But we're not supposed to do that, right? We're not supposed to judge the teams. I know we do, but we're not supposed to judge them on last season. But every year the preseason poll does exactly that, and it taints the beginning of the season because, you know, last year's rankings, last year's record is not supposed to count. But it does, guys, and it shapes the perception, the matchups, where game day goes, uh, you know, the betting lines. You know, should college football be – you know, I'm going to throw this out there. Week one, we saw some teams lay some eggs and make some mistakes and play sloppy, weird games. And I think that it got me thinking about the NFL. You know, they do play, I think, a preseason that's too long. Should the college game have one week where it's kind of a mulligan week where they get to scrimmage and play another team, but it doesn't count, or am I going too far? I think you're going too far. I, I think that's what the beauty of college football is, is that Utah, they go on the road to Florida. If that's a mulligan game, you know, what was the point of doing it? Right, like it was such an important game, and you could tell just how you know crazy the fans were at that stadium. I just think that's what the beauty of college football is. So for me, no, like I want every game to matter. Yeah, no, I I agree with Stephen. And there was a caller earlier that gave me his take, and he never ended up getting on the air. But I thought he made a really good point, where it's like, okay, Utah and Oregon are going to SEC country, and they're playing in really tough environments. I mean, Oregon obviously played in a, a really hard environment. So did Utah, you know, especially with that weather. When do you ever see Alabama going to the West Coast or going to... Oh, they don't have to, yeah. Right, like they never leave the South, even for their big games. Like they'll go to like Texas to play their big games. I think it was an interesting point the caller made where it's like, you know, teams like Georgia, Alabama, they never really seem to leave the South. And I think, you know, that's why the Pac-12, obviously the Pac-12 has its issues, but I also think, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's not doing themselves any favors by scheduling these games. Oregon took four and a half million dollar check to go there. I think Oregon, you know, probably got something out of it. But Anna, what's up? That's not a bad payday. I mean, I just think it's critically important on both sides for Oregon and Oregon State, for all of us that are observing, not to overreact to game one. Like, you know, we had talked about over the weekend how one game does not make a season. And it's how you win and it's how you lose that is important and worth noting. So it was like, you know, the way Oregon lost, right, was concerning because it was like, man, they only got three points on the board. Like, that's hard. And, and it was sort of the way that Oregon State won that was of note. Yeah. But we can't, like, I just think it's interesting how many Oregon fans after this game won 
are saying, change everything. Change the coach. Change the quarterback. Change the offensive line. Change the defensive line. It's like, is, is like special teams the only thing that you want to leave untouched? Yeah, you that, know? that uh, kickoff return team looked really good. Yeah. You know, they, had a lot, they got a lot of work yeah. out there. Seven so, or eight kickoff returns. Like, I'm sure there are positives, like, that we can draw. From. Are there positives, John, that you can draw from the Oregon game, guys? I, like, I had a hard time with that because normally I can leave a loss and go, look, if they had only done this or this, they, it would have been a different game. But I, I think they play that game 100 times, they lose it 100 times. I, I just don't think there's any way. And I'm kicking myself because I felt like week one for Georgia might br- bring some wrinkles. They're coming off the championship. They raise the banner. Like, the fans are all riding high. Maybe the team in the offseason, you know, felt like it was, you know, feeling good about itself. But, man, they looked really good. Leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. talk about Oregon State's opening uh, weekend, uh, positive weekend for Jonathan Smith, who has now won seven straight at Reeser Stadium. I was not there, but I watched it in the wee hours of Atlanta, and it was nice to see a team in our region taking care of business. Beaver fan, are you nervous about Fresno State? Are you worried about this weekend? We'll talk to Cam Worrell, uh, former Fresno State player and NFL defensive back with the Bears and other teams. He's coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. He'll be here to give us a scouting report on Fresno State. Uh, Worrell told me last week he had seen a little bit of Boise State. He predicted that Oregon State would handle Boise State, and he said it's not the same Boise State team. He, in fact, said the quarterback in particular will make bad decisions, and lo and behold, that came true. So we'll talk to Cam Worrell about Fresno State and Oregon State coming up in Hour 3. Guys, let's focus on Oregon State for just a second. Like, how impressive, how good was it for Jonathan Smith and Oregon State to win in week one? Yeah, I said this last week. I I thought all that Oregon State had to do was win the game, and that's the only important thing that matters is can they get that first win, start the season off on that good note, and they did it. And not only did they just do it, but they did it in a – in a really good way, right? They dominated the ball uh, in the first half, dominated, you know, got a couple uh, turnovers, got Hank Bachmeyer benched in the game, so they had to adjust to a new style of quarterback in Taylor Green, who likes to put the ball down and run uh, in Oregon State's defense. Kind of, you know, they gave up a couple big plays, but after that, they readjusted, uh, made some plays to wrap it up. Then Jack Coletto with a nice run on third and one. You know, I thought it was, I thought it was a great performance by Oregon State and a good way to start the season. And it gets me um, a little more excited about the Beavs this whole season. Yeah, no, I thought Oregon State looked really good. You know, it all starts with Chance Nolan for me. Chance Nolan had a uh, a really good day, 250 yards, two touchdowns. He threw uh, one particular play was that deep ball to Anthony Gold. Um, that was a super nice play. It's something that I'm looking for out of Oregon State this year. And then obviously Coletto and Musgrave looked really good. So I thought, you know, offensively Oregon State was great. Obviously they had some takeaways defensively too. I don't know how much we can make of this game. It depends how good Boise State's going to be this year. But it was it was a great start. About as good of a start as you can have if you're Oregon State. Yeah, that's my, yeah. John, my question to you is, what do you think of Boise State? I know you weren't super high on them before the season, but after this game, I mean, are we going to look back and say, well, it wasn't really that impressive of a win because Boise State isn't normally Boise State like this? Well, first of all, I'm going to say this. The game mattered. It was an important game. And I think it was interesting that Oregon State suited up for a game that 
we were all watching, and they won it, and they scored 30-plus points, and they held the opposition under 20, and they won it. So I'll take it if I'm Oregon State. I also, though, am looking over at Boise State, and Andy Avalos is in trouble. He's coached 13 games there. He's lost six of them now. And so he's playing about 500 ball. It took Chris Peterson like six years to lose six games. So there's some calls in Boise today. I wonder what sports radio is like in Idaho. But they are calling for Chris Peterson to come back in and take the program over. That said, Oregon State averaged 19.5 yards per completion. Chance Nolan had six pass plays that went for greater than 25 yards. It was Oregon State's largest single-game yards per completion since 2006. They did that to Boise State, not to, like, you know, Idaho. They didn't do it to Portland State. They didn't do it to Eastern Washington. They did it to Boise State. So, you know, these were the kinds of games that the Pac-12 struggled in a year ago. And so I'm going to give credit, and I'm going to say this was an important game, and they won it. But that said, they're going to Fresno. I think it's going to be a tougher game this weekend, a much tougher game. Yeah. And why? Like, tell us a little bit more about Fresno and what yeah. what that's about. All right, I covered that program 1998-99-2000. Pat Hill was the coach. David Carr was the quarterback. They were ranked in the top ten. They were good. Uh, the first thing you have to know is the people in Fresno um, have an inferiority complex. They're sandwiched between the Bay Area and L.A. In much the same way that I think people in Portland look up at Seattle and feel that way, I think take it to like the 10th degree. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, they take it to the 10th degree <laughs> because people in Fresno feel like they've been made fun of, been called the armpit, you know, the agricultural community feels like they're not taken seriously. And that also, I think, translates to the kids who grow up in the Central Valley and you know, play football there, They, if they don't get recruited by a Pac-12 school, they feel very overlooked. And they want nothing more than to be validated and recruited by Cal or UCLA or USC or Oregon. And when that doesn't happen, man, they show up with a chip on their shoulder. Leave it right here. We'll talk more about it coming up. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Anna, you asked me about the kids of Fresno State. I, I just think it's a tough place to play. Bulldog Stadium, they've renamed it uh, Valley Children's Hospital Stadium. But I'm telling you, the fans there, they show up. They're hostile. I talked to an Oregon State fan today. I went to college with a guy who's a big Oregon State fan now. And he, I said, are you going to the game? He lives in that area. Mm-hmm. And he said, nope. Last time I went, he said, they threw stuff at me. They poured beer on me. He said, it's not worth it. I'll stay home. It's going to be hot. And those fans are tough to deal with. Now, I'm not saying all the fans in Fresno do this, but they've been accused of throwing batteries, throwing screwdrivers. I've been there. I'm not sure they threw the screwdriver. University of Hawaii accused him of that. Uh I saw the screwdriver on the ground, on the grass, on the field. And Hawaii said, look, look, and they made a big deal about it. But I kind of felt like it would have been really easy for Hawaii, to, their equipment guy, to throw a screwdriver out there, too, or drop it as yeah. he's leaving the field, and then to accuse the <laughs> Fresno fans. But it fits the brand. Uh-huh. Okay? That's why. So it is a tough place to play. I saw Derek Anderson in Oregon State lose there. Anderson threw five picks years ago, and it was a bad game. So uh, I'm hoping Oregon State brings their A game. I'm hoping they can run the ball if they can. I think they'll be okay, but Jeff Tedford is a good coach, and he's got a quarterback in Jake Hayner. So uh, Oregon State better show up ready to play. 
Fresno State can beat them if they don't. That's good intel. We'll talk to Cam Worrell about it coming up. I think he's convinced that Fresno State is going to win that game. We'll also uh, talk next about a little bit about USC and Stanford, and we'll give you the five at five, the five biggest things going on in sports. Plus, I want to know about Steven's picks over the weekend. I heard he had a hell of a weekend. Is that true? Very true. He had a big betting week. I saw some cash flashing around. Yeah. I want to know more about that. I need to know your picks. Give me your picks for this week. Leave it here. You get the BFT. BFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. Steven, what happened with your wagering over the weekend? You had a bunch of games you loved last week. Yeah, it, it really was. Um, it was probably my biggest win. Well, actually, I take it back. Second biggest win I've ever had, like, uh, amount of money I won. But I went and I cashed in the tickets to the casino because uh, me and the wife needed just a little extra cash to, you know, play around with. And uh, th- when I got it, they rubber banded. And so that's why I thought Ooh. it was cool. Yeah, I thought it was really cool. They put it in a rubber band like it was actually, like, a lot of money. And so, uh, yeah, I had to take a picture of that. But uh, it was mostly off of one big win. I had a parlay. Uh, I like to do a money line round robin parlay. And I do, I throw four underdogs in there and, uh, you know, get all the, the possibilities for the upsets of the parlays. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, so I had um, Syracuse over, Lear, over Louisville, and that was an easy win. Ohio over FAU. That was a, not an easy win, but they won. Uh, Rutgers had a nice upset at the start of the day. And then, of course, I've been talking about this on this show all week. That's Arizona over San Diego State. I was not buying Braxton Burmeister, Brady Hogue. They took Burmeister out of the game. Arizona won the game. So four underdogs, four wins, and uh, it's, it's two Gs in my pocket. I'm just shaking my head at the fact that you were betting on all these teams that nobody knows anything about. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> Meanwhile, my weekend, I bet Oregon and I bet Utah. So I did not have a good weekend. Not a good weekend. Yeah, I mean, nobody knows anything except for me, John. You got to admit. I'm just going to follow Steve. You had Oregon in 47. I I actually, I bet. You would have been all right. I I, I bet Georgia minus the 16 and a half. That was was an easy win. That was just a single bet. So, uh, yeah, I had a a really good weekend, and it was a lot of fun on uh, Saturday. My wife. The wife and the family went down to the beach because I had to record a podcast. So I was by myself just watching college football and uh, raking in money. It was, it was a good day. Yeah, look at you. Hey, hey, now, she should leave you home alone more yeah. often is what you're She's saying. She's like, I'll be, I'll be back in two weeks. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll see you later. Yeah, Make sure, you take, the, make sure you take the kids too so I can watch uh, football myself. You're like that. Uh, what, what is the guy who was spinning straw into gold? Is it, uh, you know? Uh, yeah, uh, Rebel Stilskin. Yeah. Rebel Stilskin, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just looked at you with a looked at me like, like I was. Uh, I, I get you. I get you, John. You I, I know what thank you're talking you. about. Steven, thank you. Yeah. Hey, but here's the, here's the word of warning, okay? And I'm going to say this, Steven, because like three years ago, I started the year 6-0, and okay? okay? And I thought, oh, I got to figure it out. <laughs> I should quit what I'm doing and just go gamble. What am I doing? I'm wasting my time doing radio, writing. And then I went 0-6 in week two. Mm, yeah, and then, you know, me and Judah, we were doing Bet the Game here locally in Portland. I went 3-0 and on my uh, straight-up picks here. So, you know, I was on fire. I know it's only going to go downhill from here, but I'm celebrating no. after week one. You're, you're in a groove, man. Yeah, why not Embrace double it. down? And, and right. Steven, you said something to me that I thought was super interesting off the air. You said you're, in, you're, you're buying stock in Oregon right now. I kind of am, and I think a lot of people are overreacting. Like, they're 4-1 to one to win the conference. I think I might bet a little money on that. Yeah. I, I don't understand. I don't see it. 
I, I understand that they lost to Georgia by a lot, but Georgia is one of the top two teams in the nation. Oregon, brand new coach. We've been talking about this. I wasn't expecting to win. I, I, I think we're overreacting to this loss, yeah. and Oregon will be right at the top of the Pac-12. Of course we're overreacting. That's what everybody does. We overreact one way or the other. Mike Leach said it in the interview. He said, like, if you lose, don't read too much into it. Relax. Try not to freak out. Don't change what you do. And if you win, he says he always goes to practice and tries to beat his guys up. And, Anna, what was that quote he, he gave? You love that quote about, oh, you know, the about comfort how... of football. Here it is. Here, I got it right here. Football. He basically good. said football under the best of circumstances is played under adversity and in pain. And pretty profound. But I also think it's a good reminder for us all, like, you know, it's never as bad or never as good as it seems. And, Stephen, all I th- what I hear you saying is, you're going to take advantage of the fact that people are overreacting and you might see an opportunity. Like, Oregon could right the ship and by the end of the year be playing much better football. Yeah, I mean, I'm really interested that week three game against BYU, what that spread is going to be. Because BYU went on the road, beat uh, South Florida in week one. They play at home against Baylor this week. If they play well in that game, I don't know what that spread is going to be in Eugene. But if it's, you know... Around three points, four points. I'll be taking Oregon for sure in that game. I, I, I'm really interested to see what that spread's going to be in week three because it seems like we're so far down on the Ducks right now after being so hyped and saying, well, this team should get ten wins, nine wins. Why has that changed? Nothing changed. They've lost to Georgia in a game they should have lost. All right, so here's what I want you to do this week because I think yeah, what you're saying is you're going to see, you're going to look at the lines. You probably already have. You're going to see some opportunities. On tomorrow's show, can you give us your – Blue star five coin pick of the week on tomorrow's show. Will you give us one pick from yeah. a guy who was flawless last week? Flawless, yeah. A guaranteed winner. A lot. No, I'm just kidding. No, no, not guaranteed. But yes, I can. I can give you my five-star hard, yeah. cold lock of the week. Yes, that's what I want. I want you to do it kind of in a Philly accent, too, when you do it. All right, I got to start John, watching YouTube. John, Stephen told me about a, a certain Pac-12 line this week. Did you know that Colorado is a 17-point dog against Air Force? 17 and a half at Air Force. It's crazy. Good opportunity. Eh, is it? Yeah, the bad Air Force. <laughs> I hate betting on bad teams. I just hate it. Uh, I, I looked, Some of the lines did jump out at me because I thought overreaction, and I thought there were some teams that maybe shouldn't be favored the way they are, but... I, obviously, Vegas is reacting to the public sentiment, which after one week is, oh, no, <laughs> you know, like it, it they are just some there's some weird spreads out there. Yeah, there are. There's four Pac-12 teams this week, John, that are double digit dogs. We got Colorado, 17 and a half. Washington State is 17 point underdogs at Wisconsin. Hmm. Arizona State, 11 point underdogs at Oklahoma State. And then Arizona at home, 10 and a half point underdogs to Mississippi State. Mike I'm betting against them all. <laughs> I, I kind of feel, I'm kind of with you this week. Yeah, I think uh, it's nuts. All right, we're going to do the 5 at 5. We'll talk to Cam Morrell coming up uh, at about 518 if you want to hear about uh, Oregon State's next opponent. Let's do it. The 5 at 5. Let's start in the NFL. Britt Reed, the former Kansas City Chiefs assistant and the son of Andy Reed, is entering a plea in the 2021 car crash that seriously injured a young girl. You remember it right around the Super Bowl. Uh, The car crash seriously injured Ariel Young, who was five years old at the time. Uh, Reed is facing up to seven years in prison. Through his attorney, he apologized to her family and to his own family. Police said Reed was intoxicated and speeding when he hit two parked cars on an entrance ramp near Arrowhead Stadium in February 2021. Young suffered a traumatic brain injury. 
the car had stalled because of a dead battery. The second one was owned by Young's mother, who had arrived to help. Reed was traveling 84 miles an hour. He had a blood alcohol level of .113, the legal limit .08. Um, really unfortunate, sad story. I don't know about you guys, but when I hear this story, my mind goes to Ariel Young and not Britt Reed, even though he gets the headline. Anna, go, number two. Those gloves from the match, Evander Holyfield's gloves from that rematch with Mike Tyson. Oh, you know, the one where Holyfield lost uh, part of his year. Uh, they're on the auction block. He, of course, won those gloves during the highly anticipated second fight with Tyson. This was back in June of 97 at the MGM Grand Garden Arena in Vegas. Those red gloves worn by Holyfield. Uh... They have Holyfield number one in black marker on each cuff logo, and they show light use, which makes sense because the bout was called after only three rounds. I remember that. You know what would be better is if they had the other piece of Holyfield's ear. You know what I mean? And they were like, hey, you can have the gloves and the ear. Didn't he get it reattached? I don't know if he did. No, because remember you got the picture with him? Oh, guys, 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 right. Anna went to the ESPN Super Bowl party years ago in, in Florida. Was that one of the Super Bowl? Tampa Super Tampa, Bowl, I think. Yeah. Or was it Tampa or Miami? It's Tampa. Know. Anyway, Anna went to the party. Evander Holyfield's there. He really couldn't talk. Yeah. He was kind of mumbling. And, you know, he looked like a guy had been in some fights. But I, I couldn't help it. You posed for a picture with him. Yeah. I wasn't looking at either one of you guys. I was looking at his ear. <laughs> Yeah, part of the, you're still a, missing. It would be a good opener. Like if you're you know flirting with a woman or something, be like, hey, check my ear out. Do you want to do you want to touch my ear? Like I think it's a good opener. I was you fascinated so? by that. I, I think do. that's a good opener. Is that not, is that bad? It's I'm, a, I'm glad you're married. It's a conversation no, like yeah. I'll, I'll do I'll do it on my wife tonight. Hey, my ear. <laughs> was this 2020 Tampa? Or was this I, years ago? No, it was it was before that. It was it was, before that. It was uh, I'm in Miami. No, it was the Super Bowl that had the Cardinals and the Steelers, I think. Oh, so you're talking a long time ago. Okay. Yeah, okay, whatever. Well so you said Tampa and Miami, that's like the last couple of years, the Super yeah, Bowl. Yeah, they they've come back around. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> talking about the OG Super Bowl. You know, Bowls. there was there was sports before you were alive, Sean. Okay? <laughs> so old. No, I remember watching Cardinal Steelers. They had a whole history of the NFL. I remember what year were you born? 1999. Okay, I saw that Super Bowl. I was probably there. <laughs> I was at the uh, Buccaneers Ravens Super Bowl. 99ish. Wouldn't know. Wasn't 2000. A Trent Dilfer won it. Won a Super Bowl. How about that? Uh. All right, number three in our five at five. Seattle Seahawks wide receiver Tyler Lockett said something today that's eh, kind of not going over well in Seattle, or maybe it is, I don't know. He said he believes Russell Wilson deserves a warm ovation when he returns to Lumen Field Monday night to face his former team for the first time as the all-new Denver Broncos quarterback. Will he get booze? Will he get cheers? Will he get a mix of the two? Nobody seems to know, but Lockett says, hey, appreciate this guy, he gave you a lot. That is number three. Anna, number four, go. I'm reluctant to do this one because I feel like I'm falling into the promotional trap, but okay. I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, so LeBron James and Dwayne Wade are producing this documentary on the 2008 Redeem Team. And so it has sparked this 
pseudo-argument. I don't know if anybody's actually arguing or if this is just what they're doing to stir it up. But were they actually the all-time best team? The 2008 no, Redeem team? they weren't. Okay, well, there you go. You don't need to watch the Netflix documentary that's coming out in October. I mean, they, I was, okay, I was there in Athens four years before that when they blew it yeah. and Puerto Rico beat them, okay? <laughs> Puerto Rico was Puerto wearing Rico. and one sneakers. Steven, tell the people what and one sneakers mean. Uh, they mean street ball. They, uh, they, 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 go watch the documentary on Netflix. That's what it's about. <laughs> the professor. Yeah. And so I, I was at, like, I think I was at synchronized swimming or fencing. My phone starts blowing up. Hardcore, it's, hardcore stuff. I was on hardcore stuff because <laughs> the dream team was playing Puerto Rico. All of a sudden, my phone starts blowing up. My editor's like, you better get to basketball. It was halftime. Puerto Rico was winning. I got to the arena. I watched the second half. I couldn't believe it. Puerto Rico, they had a bunch of scrubs. Carlos Arroyo was the leader of that team. Yes. I had a pair of uh, and one Puerto Rico sneakers. I got them when I was in college. I got them out of a boot. I don't know where I got them. It's from a, the back of this guy's car, but I paid for them, and they were cool. I couldn't stop looking at the sneakers because the, the United States players were wearing like Air Jordans and the Puerto Ricans were wearing and one. Wow. And I was like, wow, <laughs> we have uh, this is rock bottom, guys. So, yeah, four years later, they redid the team. You know, it was supposed to be this, you know, more collaborative effort to build a team instead of a bunch of individuals. That's cool. But there's no way that team was better than the Magic Johnson, Larry Bird original dream team. Michael Jordan, come on. I guess it's being debated. No. Finally, our fifth thing in the five at five. Fake news. <laughs> Let's talk about the <laughs> top 25 poll in college football. Georgia rose all the way up to number two in the polls, leapfrogging Ohio State after, you know, dominating the opener against Oregon. Alabama's still number one. They got 44 of the 63 first plate votes. Oregon's out of the polls. Oregon State not in the polls. Clemson's at five. Ohio State's at three. Michigan's at four. Utah fell all the way to number 13, and Florida jumped in there at 12. I would love to see Utah and Florida play again. And by the way, I don't think the door is closed on Utah fighting their way back towards the playoff, but they're going to have to be damn near perfect, if not perfect, in Pac-12 play. Leave it here. Cam Worrell coming up, former Fresno State star. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. I've worked at six newspapers in my career. One of them, Fresno, the Fresno Bee in Fresno, California. I covered Fresno State football from as a columnist in, uh, from about 1998 into about 2001 or so. And one of the players who played at Fresno State in that time was a uh, defensive back named Cameron Worrell. And, you know, Fresno State was good. Pat Hill at coach, David Carr at quarterback, Bernard Berrien catching passes, Rodney Wright. They were good. They were dangerous. Andy Ludwig, now at Utah as the offensive coordinator, was the offensive coordinator at Fresno State. Uh, it's weird for me 20-something years later to have one of those kids that I watch play and I cover come on the show. But Cam Worrell has been to the NFL and back. He's lived a life. He's doing good things. And he joins us now. How are you, man? John, man, it's great to talk to you. It's been so long. Appreciate you bringing me on, man. I'm pumped. 
I was doing a little bit of research, man. I found a picture of you in a Bears uniform. It looks like you're sacking Brett Favre. You've done some things. <laughs> yeah, at the time, it was a New Year's Eve game, and we thought that was going to be the last sack of Brett Favre's career, and he went on to play like six more years. <laughs> so it was, it was a fun 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 play but uh yeah man i had I had a good time those those present state years were a blast and then you know six years in the nfl and playing in the super bowl for a kid from chowchilla california that's uh it's been a fun ride for sure give us an idea i was trying to explain to people earlier sort of the chip on the shoulder feeling that some of the kids that play or suit up at fresno state have geographically it's not the Pac-12 but you know I I watched those kids and you and your teammates under Pat Hill anywhere anytime uh suit up you played Ohio State you played Wisconsin you beat them you beat Colorado um what can you help us with the mentality of a Fresno State kid yeah I think I think you know a majority of the players who come to Fresno State and have success they you know, they have the same mentality as people from the Central Valley. You know, if you if you want to have success in the Central Valley, you have to bust your butt. Like, there's no, you know, it's not easy. There's no tech world. You can't show up in a suit and tie most of the time. Like, you get your hands dirty. You work hard. It's hot. Nobody really wants to be here because it's so hot. The air is bad. I mean, all of those things. When you come here to play for Fresno State, there's not a lot of bells and whistles that you don't have all the new facilities and different uniform combinations. You come here because you're going to get pushed. You're going to get coached hard. And if you buy into that and you approach it with that mentality, you're going to have success. You're going to turn into a good football player. Most of the time you're going to have good teams to play on. Sometimes they're special. Sometimes they're okay. But, you know, more times than not, this is a program that is going to have success. They're going to go to a bowl game. And I really feel like everybody grows up dreaming of playing at USC and UCLA. And when you don't get those opportunities and you have to come to a place like Fresno State, I think you just inherently have that chip on your shoulder. I have something to prove because the places I wanted to go didn't believe that I could get it done. And I feel like this football team kind of takes on – the mentality for this entire region. We're talking to Cameron Worrell, former NFL player, Fresno State star back in the day. You guys um, in that era under Pat Hill really did play anybody, anywhere, anytime. What did that feel like? What was that like for you? It, I, it was awesome. I mean, the, some of the experiences I had in college, I can remember that Washington, or that Wisconsin game in 2001. We're down at halftime, maybe 17-7. Bernard takes the, and the, you know, by far the most raucous crowd I've, I had ever witnessed in person, uh, Camp Randall Stadium. Just so loud the entire first half. We could barely talk to each other on the sideline. We come out of the second half. Bernard takes the opening kickoff back. We get a pick on third down. Dave throws a touchdown. You know, we go from down, you know, 10 to up four. And just really, we boat raced Wisconsin after that. And the, we could talk like this on the sideline. I mean, we could have a normal conversation where in the first half you could not hear a thing. So just kind of the dichotomy of, of uh, you know, the, the crowd in the first half compared to the second half was insane. And then we went back the next year, my senior year, 2002, the first night game in Camp Randall Stadium. We lost on a field goal, uh, but they did, you know, they do jump around. 
at the beginning of the fourth quarter uh, at Camp Randall, and it was crazy that night. But the year before, there was no jump around because that stadium was shocked. So getting to play in places like that and the horseshoe, it's, I mean, those are, those are lifelong memories that, that, that we still talk about to this day, going there and, and winning some big-time games. So it was, it was a lot of fun. It was a blast. You, you and I messaged a little bit prior to this last weekend, and you had you know sort of given some insight about Boise State and their quarterback, and you were on the money. Oregon State made them look uh, erratic and unprepared on, on offense. Quarterback got subbed out during the game. Tell us what's going on with Boise State, because you get a look at them in the Mountain West. Yeah, usually every year, too, you know, Mountain West kind of changes their schedule up, so it's some, sometimes we don't see them. But I just – I saw the Chris Peterson teams. You know, I, I, I played the Dan Hawkins teams and watched Chris Peterson turn that into a top-five program perennially. I mean, some of those years they could hang with anybody. First-round draft picks, Kellen Moore sliced everybody up that he played. I mean, they were extremely talented, but they were – so well coached. Every single detail was covered. They made you think on defense pre-snap. They made you think on defense post-snap. I mean, they were really complex in everything that they did. And I've witnessed over the last probably decade, I'm not sure when Chris Peterson left, but uh, there's been a steady decline. They're just not the same Boise State program. They don't have the same talent. You know, there's still really good talent for the Mountain West, but not the same talent. Uh, they don't execute to the same level. Uh, you know, I think the small details that used to be afterthoughts because they were so, you know, the repetitions that they went through were so great. They understood everything. I just don't see the same level of execution. And that's exactly what any Oregon State fan that watched that game on Saturday night, they're like, this is supposed to be a good Boise State team because they do not look like it at all. They look disorganized, dysfunctional you know, not really understanding what they're being asked to do, making mental errors, that that didn't happen during Chris Peterson's time. They did not make mental errors. They exploited mental errors from their opponent every single week, and I just don't see that. They're still a good program, you know, still one of the better programs in the Mountain West, but I've watched that, you know, level of execution drop from those Peterson days to now, and, and I think everybody saw that Saturday night. We're talking to Cam Worrell, six-year NFL veteran, former Fresno State star. Give us an idea. Oregon State's defense, Fresno State's receivers in particular. Uh, how do you see that matching up? Yeah, yeah, I think Fresno State probably has one of the better units on the West Coast. Outside, I mean, SB totally different, right? But I think they have two legitimate NFL receivers. I think a third, Josh Kelly, who is right in that conversation as well. So very explosive, very quick. Nico Remigio, who you guys had seen, was at Cal, transferred and had a very uh, explosive opening. It was against Cal Poly, but did some very exciting things. You know, they're, they're a matchup problem. There really are three guys that you have to account for. If you don't account for them, Jay Kaner is going to find the mismatch and get the ball to an open receiver. So very difficult to take care of all three of those receivers. And then you have Trey Watson, Jordan Mims, who can catch it out of the backfield. And, and you know, 225, he's an NFL back as well. 
Um, they're, they're very uh, multiple, and they can beat you in a lot of different ways. Uh, what I was really impressed Saturday night watching Oregon State was just how physical their front seven played. I mean, Boise is usually a team that can establish a run game. They want to establish a run game. They want to be physical at the point of attack. Oregon State just slapped them around. And the one, I think, big kind of a question mark around this Fresno State team, especially the offense, is how is this offensive line going to protect Jay Kaner and can they establish a consistent run game? If they can, then Jay Kaner stays clean and they're going to rip a lot of people apart. If they don't and Jay Kaner gets hit, I mean, he's a he, just like everybody. He, he's a different quarterback when he's getting banged up back in the pocket as opposed to just sitting back there clean. So, you know, skill guys, they're, they're about as good as anybody on the West Coast. But, uh, you know, you, you can kind of get in the backfield and, and disrupt Jay Kaner a little bit, and that affects their entire off- offensive uh, operation. There was Tedford's first era, which was fantastic. Then Kalen DeBoer came in. He did a really nice job. Now Tedford's back again. Does Is the energy around the program there, Cam? Is, is you know, when Tedford came back in, did the fan base really react to that? Yeah, everybody loves Jeff. I mean, played quarterback here, was an assistant for a long time, left, uh, you know, went up to Oregon and and was the OC there and then got the Cal job and, you know, had Cal – top five in the country. I mean, did a phenomenal job there. And when he came back in 2017, everybody was excited. Everybody knows the caliber of coach he is, just loves Jeff Tedford because he's a bulldog. You know, they watched him play. And when he had to step away, it was, it was very sad, but he did what was best for him, you know, in the moment from a health perspective. And, and he got better and he was able to come back. So I, I don't think I've seen this much excitement around this program since Derek Carr was a senior, and Devontae Adams was here, and they were the defending Mount West champions. I, you know, went 11 and 0 before San Jose State knocked them off. That's the type of excitement that you know Fresno has. 36,000 people in the stands on a Thursday night. It was 102 at kickoff against Cal Poly, and there were really 36,000 fans in the seats. Back when you were in Fresno, that was kind of commonplace. You know, people would show up and sell Bulldog Stadium out. It has not been that way. You know, over the last 10 years or so, fully expect Saturday night to be a sellout. I think people will be in the seats ready for this game. They're they're very, very excited about the returning players, you know, coming back from the 10-3 program and then having Jeff Tedford come back and put his stamp back on this program. Everybody's very excited. It was really it, it was really interesting to be there as a media member and watch you guys play. And you guys had tremendous talent. A bunch of you guys played in the NFL, but it was also interesting to see kind of the way you played. There was there was an attitude that you had, and I know Oregon State went in there in twenty uh, two thousand three, and you know Derek Anderson threw five interceptions and and you know had a terrible game against uh, Fresno State, and I think. It was interesting to see kind of Fresno State seize on that. Is there a chance here, Cam, that Fresno State looks past Oregon State and looks at the game looming with USC, or are they focused on Oregon State? Yeah, I mean, I think there's always kind of a possibility of that, right? I mean, SC's getting all the hype, and Lincoln Riley's down there, and they lit rights up, but it's a it's a great benefit that this Fresno State program has Jeff Tedford you know, at the helm because 
he really won't allow that to happen. And if, if this team, if anybody on this team watched that game Saturday night, which I know a lot of them did, they will not overlook this Oregon State football team. This, this program knows, you know, the standard that Boise State plays, and Oregon State mopped the floor with Boise State Saturday night. I know uh, Taylor Green came in and made some things happen with his legs, but they were lost. They were completely outmatched in that game. So it would really shock me if anybody in this program was overlooking Oregon State. It's very rare, John, that a Pac-12 school is willing to come to Bulldog Stadium and play Fresno State at home. They just don't get this opportunity very often. So, you know, they, they know what's at stake in this game. And, and as I said, if anybody overlooks this opponent, I would be extremely shocked at that. Camberwell, defensive back, NFL, uh, six years in the NFL with the Bears, Dolphins, Fresno State star back in the day is with us. Cam, uh, you got to see you got to see Randy Moss quite a bit during your era. I was looking back, kind of when you played, where you were. What was that like as a defensive back? Uh, it was uh, extremely humbling. It, it was extremely humbling. I mean, you know. We, in Chicago, we did so many things to take Randy Moss out of the football game. And for the most part, we did uh, because we usually sent two guys at him. But, you know, when I was in Miami, uh, it was a year they were undefeated and they were just a juggernaut. And, and, you know, Randy Moss mossed me a couple times. And one time, Tom Brady threw a ball up and I was like, there's no way he's throwing this ball up. And he threw it up. And sure enough, I was like, this is my first interception this is about as easy as it gets. And then somebody hits me in the back of the head and it's Randy Moss jumping over the top of me, catching a touchdown. He was just, <laughs> if he needed to run faster, he would run faster. I mean, every, he could do everything. People don't understand. He was like 225, 230 pounds. He was a huge person. So you try to hit him like he's not small. He, he was just as good as I ever saw it, as tough of a matchup that we ever game planned for. I mean, he was just totally different. He would run down the field and not really put his hands up and then reach out and snag a ball. It didn't give you any idea that the ball was coming. He was just a first ballot Hall of Famer, a no-brainer, one of the best ever to do it at his position. And, you know, there are, there are plays that I did every single thing right possible. I knew exactly where the ball was going to go. I knew I timed everything correctly, and I still lost the rep because Randy Moss was just that much better. And Sometimes you just tip the cap and move on because there's nothing else you can really do. Randy Moss was, was that type of talent. Yeah, it, and I don't, I don't think people understand when you get to that level and you play as long as you did in the league, like – you're going to encounter freaky athletes that are, you know, it's just, it, it's, you know, I, I, I said before, like, I, I remember when I first started covering the NFL, walking into the locker room and seeing the defensive tackles and just not realizing how tall they were and how long they were. And, you know, it, it, they couldn't walk down the hallway. Like, everybody else had to get out of the hallway. Like, you know, when you got to the NFL, like, because you, you stuck and you played. When you looked around, the athleticism must have just been mind-blowing. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, I was a decent athlete, and I was not a great athlete by any means, but I was good enough to play safety. I played a lot of special teams in the NFL. You know, I was a backup of majority of my career, but I had, you know, I had enough to get it done. Uh, and, and But I had to work really, really hard 
at all of the very small details. You know, I had to understand everything. I had to do so much film study to give myself an advantage because guys were just fast and quick and physical. I mean, with Damian Tomlinson, luckily I only had to play him one time. Just 225 could make you miss because he was so quick, but could just put his head down and run you over too. Like those guys, you just, you have to kind of take a shot and hope for the best and, and hope you don't miss too many tackles or get ran over too many times in a the day. There were guys that you, and everybody knows them, Jerome Bettis. We played him in 05. He had to be like 270, but he could still make you miss because he was so quick, even though he was 270. You know, I watched Brian Erlacher in practice every single day. 6'4", 260, didn't look like it at all, could run with anybody. Used to run with Randy Moss down the middle of the field in our Tampa 2 coverage. I mean, sideline to sideline. When he got there, he laid the hammer on people. These are guys that you just marvel at watching. I mean, I was a six-year NFL veteran, and I wasn't in the same league as Brian Urlacher or Randy Moss. You know, there were guys that were just head and shoulders better than everybody else. And, I, I mean, I'm really – lucky and blessed that I got to have those opportunities that I understand, you know, how good people who make big time plays in the NFL really are. Cause a lot of people, they, they, they really just don't understand what it takes to, to be a top level performer in that league. Our guest, Cameron Worrell, former Fresno state star played six years in the NFL. All right, before I uh, cut you loose here, give me what you think happens. What kind of game are we looking at on Saturday in Fresno? for Oregon State? I think it's a fist fight. I mean, you know, you talked about our Pat Hill teams back in the early 2000s. This Jonathan Smith, Oregon State team, they play that way. They play with the chip. They want to bring the fight to you from the opening kickoff all the way through the fourth quarter. I think it's going to be a fist fight, you know. who, Whoever, if there are turnovers, obviously that's kind of the, you know, the great, equalizer or can be the biggest difference so if one team turns it over i don't think they can win the game i really don't if you turn it over twice and and uh, your opponent doesn't i don't think you can win this football game um i think it's going to be a very competitive game i'm very nervous about that front seven for oregon state and how they may affect uh this fresno state offensive line if they dictate the the, the front for fresno I think it's a long night. Fresno State has a lot of horses, but I don't think they have the horses to get it done if Oregon State can win the line of scrimmage consistently. If not, if Fresno State can run the ball, if they can get Jay Kaner out a little bit, then I think they have the athletes to, to score enough points to win. But I don't think this is going to be – neither side is going to run away. I think it's going to be a four-quarter game, and really I think a handful of plays – is, is going to be the difference. Somebody's going to make a couple more plays than the opponent, and someone's going to be disappointed at the end of the night. But I tell you this, John, I'm, I am so excited to see a Pac-12 team, the caliber of Oregon State coming to Fresno Saturday night because it's just it's a fun night for college football in Fresno and a really good test for what I think is a really good Fresno State football team. Cam, I really enjoy uh, hearing from you, knowing that you're doing well and that you're out there kicking butt still. And thanks for uh, thanks for coming on with us. And if you see me at the stadium, grab me and say hello because all I remember is Cam Morrell is like a 19, 20 year old kid. So uh, <laughs> you're you're grown up. You got a life now, and uh, I'm happy for you, man. Yeah, appreciate it. I will, of course. I have a lot of gray hair now, so. You won't recognize me, but I'll snag you for sure, John. Appreciate it, man. It was a a blast to catch up.
All right, Cameron Worrell, there he is, former Fresno State star in the NFL. Stephen, what do you think about trying to cover Randy Moss now? Uh, yeah, that seems like it would be a very difficult uh, proposition, <laughs> right? But but it's so true what he said is, like, you can play so perfectly, but sometimes it doesn't matter, right? Like, these guys are just God-given great yep. athletes that will beat you no matter what you do. I think it's going to be a fantastic game. I think Oregon State knows what it's up against. We'll have Jaden Grant on the show on Thursday. He is the Pac-12's Defensive Player of the Week. We'll get a uh, Oregon State outlook on that coming up. Leave it here. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I don't know if you've ever had a uh, interaction like that where you suddenly feel very old. Cam Worrell, I knew him. He was 19 or 20. Now he's 42 now. What happened? Man, uh, I can't imagine uh, having to cover Randy Moss. But I also know, look, I think Oregon State is capable of going to Fresno State and winning. I think they are capable of finishing their non-conference 3-0. and And if they do that, I think they will crack the top 25. They'll be ranked. Uh, I think a road win at Fresno State would sort of affirm to the voters that what they saw in the opening week was not an aberration, that Oregon State was played a part in making Boise State look bad. Um, I, I find it very interesting that the voters gave a lot of credit to some of the winners over the weekend, but did not largely reward the Pac-12 winners the way that they did in other conferences. Do you guys feel like there's a bias that is inherent in the voters right now, an anti-Pac-12 bias? I think a little bit, you know, and it's because of what we saw this past weekend and, you know, what we what we saw last year. Like, the Pac-12 has not done great in non-conference. And I also think, you know, what I was trying to say with Oregon State earlier is that you kind of have to prove it. I know you disagreed on this point, but I think, you know, you kind of have to prove it that you're you're a program that is a top 25 program and now while Oregon State had a really good year last year you know they they still went seven and six with you know the loss against Utah State at the end there so yeah I I do think that this win against Fresno State would go a long way um, because we're not really sure what Boise State is and you know I think uh, I, I can see Oregon State being a top 25 team I think they will get there I think I feel like it is justified but I also I looked at every ballot Okay, and I I went through and looked at which writers, which regions of the country are not voting the Pac-12 teams at all uh, as high as maybe some other regions. Feels to me that there is a real bias in Big 12 country against the Pac-12 for some reason. Maybe it's all the hostility that has happened. Uh, But I also feel like, uh, you know, the east eastern part of the United States does not like the Pac-12 either. And maybe justifiably so because of the bad non-conference record a year ago. Again. Pac-12 went 9-3 and three in the opening week, but the three games against other Power 5 conferences, they laid an egg in two of them. And Utah, can we just for a moment talk about Utah? Because if Cam Rising, at the end of the game, throws the ball away, throws it off the scoreboard, throws it into the stands, uh, Utah kicks field goal and they go into overtime, who knows what happens. I think Florida's really good. I think Anthony Richardson is dangerous. He looked great. Reminded me a little bit of... Vince Young uh, at Texas, uh, you know, not quite as big as Cam Newton, but man, you can see how Florida's going to use a- Anthony Richardson in the run game. Um, Utah wasn't ready for that. Their run defense wasn't ready for it. Didn't play well at times, but they were inside the six-yard line twice, got no points, and ended up losing the game by three. You know, I'm 
I'm kind of looking at Kyle Whittingham and going, gosh, man, why did I trust that team? Guys, let's talk about Utah. Well, the thing is about Utah, and we talked about this with Randy Moss, like Anthony Richardson was just better than the Utah players because on that two-point conversion, he had that jump spin move, and then he got found the guy wide open in the back of the end zone. That made the game three, right? And you talk about going down, Cam Rising throws it away, they kick the field goal. If he doesn't make that unbelievable play, Utah goes down, kicks a game-winning field goal, they win. We don't even talk about the Pac-12 losing. So it's just one of those things. I didn't think Utah played bad, right? I just thought Florida was just as good, just as talented, and they had the best player on the field in Anthony Richardson. So I don't downgrade Utah at all. I thought they played really well, but Florida, man, they just have the best player, and he proved it in that point of the game. Yeah, I, and I think you know it's a tough one for Utah. It's kind of a, a thankless game because I do think that Florida is truly a top 25 at least team, but they're going to play a gauntlet of an SEC schedule, and there's a chance that Florida, despite how good they are, despite how good their quarterback is, goes like 7-5 and five this year, and then suddenly that loss does not look good for Utah. So it was a uh, it was a tough one, I think, you know, for Utah to schedule and uh, also for them to, to lose that game. Can't blame them for losing, though, because I do think that Florida is going to be a really good team this year. They just have to play a really tough conference schedule. Yeah, I could see that loss also being a good loss by the end of the year. Let's just say it's an 8-win Florida team Richardson's a Heisman candidate and you know Florida hasn't embarrassed itself if Utah arrives at that point with one loss I think they're in the playoff conversation but it is a long road and nobody in the Pac-12 has gone undefeated in conference play since Oregon did it in 2010 here's one for you guys USC's next two opponents they have uh, Stanford this week then they have Fresno State then it's Oregon State in that order okay if Oregon State happens to beat Fresno State and then win the Montana State game. They're going to be 3-0. and They would be hosting USC at 3-0. and Is it possible if USC gets by Stanford, gets by Fresno State, that the USC-Oregon State game could be a 4.30 or 5 p.m. kickoff on ABC or ESPN? Is it possible that Oregon State would you know get a big time opportunity against USC in in what would be week 4. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what the other matchups are, but that could be a college game day place, right? I mean, Corvallis would be a fun place to be. Uh and USC would have the have the hype Oregon State has been playing well and they beat two good teams, right? Boise State and Fresno State are really good. I could see this happening, right? I mean, Oregon State is a one-point favorite. It's pretty much a pick 'em against Fresno, but they obviously have enough talent and they're playing well enough to win that game. I, I really hope that this happens, that USC, Oregon State, 3-0, and going against each other. Man, that that could be a really hyped game, and a game where Oregon State has always usually played well against USC in Corvallis. Okay, I'm looking at the Week 4 matchups right now. Wisconsin plays Ohio State. Right now that's 19 versus 3. Wake Forest, Clemson, top 25 matchup. Arkansas, Texas A&M, that's 16 versus 6. So that seems to be the main yeah. competition if your scenario ends up playing out with Oregon State yeah. and USC. I, I also think USC, there's a, there's a, I think there's a very good chance that USC loses at least once in the next three games. It's, it's Stanford, it's Fresno State, it's Oregon State. I think there's a loss out there for Lincoln Riley. It's just, I have no evidence there. But, Stephen, you talked about this before. You like Stanford in the points this week, or is, you want to wait? Yeah, I mean, I believe it's at like nine right now. I, if I had to bet it, I'm definitely betting Stanford. I hope. You know, some money comes in at USC, I can get that 10 points. But, yeah, I like Stanford. You know, we talked about this all season long. David Shaw, I believe in him as a good coach. They had a good outing against Colgate, and I thought that really matters. And USC, they had three pick sixes, which they aren't going to be able to rely on all season long. So, yeah, I, I like uh, Stanford plus the points, especially at home. 
in that first conference game against Lincoln Riley uh, and the Trojans. I want you to leave it here. You got the bald face truth statewide. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Peter Sampson in the post coming up top of the hour in Portland on 750 The Game. Peter, what do you got, man? Man, we're going to continue to break down the uh, mess that was this weekend for the Pac-12. I want to talk especially about that Oregon State game. I was uh, really taken with their defense. Aside from that little blip in the third quarter, they look good. And on top of that, there's a, a little bit of a change in uh, in uh, minor league baseball. Some news that I think is going to be good for the game that I think a lot of folks aren't thinking about. I love it. I, I And... Did you wager on games like Steven, or did you sit out and kind of just enjoy the weekend? Uh, I am uh, not too proud to admit that I uh, got down on Oregon to cover, and that was over quite early. But aside from that, I got down on a little bit of week zero, always bet against Scott Frost in Nebraska. Uh, but last week was light. I uh, I enjoyed the games. I, the Oregon game put me to sleep, but I was kind of watching some other games throughout the time. And in the press box, you we had plenty of time in Atlanta <laughs> to deviate from that Ducks game. Um, Lincoln Riley and USC. It, it's interesting if we can kick this around just for a minute. The scheme he is using is very complex. He's got great athletes. It looks like seven on seven on grass, right? Of course. But I'm wondering if Stanford can score with USC. Guys, does Stanford need to score to win that game? Yeah, I think that they they do to an extent, right? But I think USC got benefited by that three pick sixes. That's not going to happen again. And so I do think that Stanford, the way that they're going to do it, they're going to ball control just like they have all throughout the Davis Shaw experience. And I think they're going to try to run it down the throats of USC and make it you know, a less possession game. That's what they're going to do, keep Caleb Williams off the field. So, yeah, I do think they have to score, but I don't know that they have to score as much as you think they're going to have to do because they're going to play a certain way that goes against what USC wants. And I, I'm wondering the physicality of USC. We saw them pushed around by Oregon State last year. We saw them pushed around every week. Will they have new physicality? I'm interested to learn that and see what they are. Um, but I think, you know, we're going to get an opportunity to see them play Stanford. Then they will play Fresno State who has a couple of former USC assistants on that Fresno State team. But we have a great show coming tomorrow. Uh, Peter Sampson in the Pulse coming up right here in Portland on 750 The Game. The bald-faced truth is not here for a long time. Just a good time.